0: So where to start? I say we, let's let's talk about it. Renee Ritchie. Let's talk year in review. Yes. Where better to start than uh, January?
1: It was a quiet beginning of the year. It was so quiet that people were again pounding the doom drums that Apple wasn't doing anything anymore.
0: Yeah, and maybe even before we get into details like January, maybe just take that and and use it like to me like the year in review as a whole. Like with zoom out, big level, what are we going to look back on this year? I would say that this was the year where that that sense that that Apple can't do it anymore sense got rubbed away slowly but surely over the course of the year.
1: I agree. I think it built up too. I think it reached a crescendo because you know people kept making a big deal of Tim Cook saying we'd be releasing new product character- categories throughout the year, and then as the months ticked on, they seemed to get more and more personally angry with him.
0: Yeah, I think so too, and I think because it, it the the naysayers have been the down on cook overall anyway like that's the root of their naysaying
1: yeah i mean they uh, we go over the short term at least they wanted him fired they said he was destroying apple they kept comparing him to steve jobs in, in a very negative way and looking back at it in hindsight it's absolutely ridiculous
0: yeah i was just thinking that when, um before we started recording i was thinking that I don't think anybody called for that in 2014, but at least in 2013, you can find several instances of ostensibly serious uh, business writers calling either for Tim Cook to be outright fired, or at least calling for Apple's board to like rein him in and and have him rejigger the company.
1: We did have Haunted Empire, I think, earlier this year, which sort of showed that Apple was completely doomed without Steve Jobs.
0: Yeah, I think it's. I think that's sort of the publication of Haunted Empire. Um, what was her first name? Her last name is Kane. Or
1: yeah, Yukatori. You could, you could
0: yeah, Yukatari Kane. Yukari. Oh, um, not sure. I would say that the publication of her book Haunted Empire was sort of the. I was going to say high watermark, but I would say maybe the lo- low watermark of Apple naysaying. Yeah. Uh, when did that come out? That was probably February.
1: Yeah, it must. Have, it have was when I was with Jason Snell, which means it had to be around Macworld time or something.
0: Yeah, which was, I think, February yeah. last year. Um, yeah, and I could not help but get the feeling when I read it that it was rushed into publication because I kind of felt like at least if she didn't know, at least her the, the editorial team at, at her publisher sort of got the sense that, that the time was kicking on that sort of doom and gloom. Which was interesting because you could probably make an argument
1: um, for a haunted empire, but they didn't even make an attempt to make it. It was a bunch of pages
0: strung together and nothing resembling a book. Yeah, and a bunch of a couple of anecdotes to string it together. Yeah, I do think though, like if there is, I think it was a very bad book, and I think it's already showing its age, and I think it's only going to look worse as the years go on. But on the other hand, I'm kind of glad the book exists. Because it captures that sort of uh like post Steve Jobs pre-Apple Watch negative Apple perspective. Like and in hindsight, you know what I mean? It's like these yes. years they always blur together. And four or five years from now, it's like this whole you know, period in between where the Apple Watch was announced and when we actually you know have it and we have generation two and three by you know, four or five years from now. It'll just, you know, be a, a, a blink, you know, we'll snap our fingers and think about these, this interim period. But I feel like her book sort of captures the epitomizes that that sort of negative viewpoint.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. We do tend to look back with so the rose-colored glasses, like the original iPhone, the original iPad. They couldn't do anywhere nearly what they could do now, but we still look at them with fondness. We think of current software updates as being buggy, but you look back at iOS, you know, two point something, when everyone was complaining it couldn't attach to a three G network, and Apple was rushing out a fix. We have, we have this weird uh, sort of affection, I think, for the past. Yeah.
0: Um. So I do. I think that's twenty fourteen in a nutshell. Is that the 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 world at large and the conventional wisdom about Apple and about Tim Cook's leadership have caught up to reality, which is that the company was, you know, Steve Jobs left the company in very good shape and in very good hands.
1: Yes. And it took about two or three years, it seems, for the mainstream financial media to sort of concede that point.
0: I would say almost a full three years, right? Because he died in 2011. Yes. I would say it was a full three years.
1: And Tim Cook, I mean, the company has never been worth more. The stock price is through the roof. They've introduced not only the Apple Watch, but Apple Pay. They have an A8X processor. They have a 5K iMac. And you still look at Fortune Contributor Network sometimes, and and, and you just
0: want to know how they get published. Yeah. All right. You're in review. January. Definitely a slow start, I think.
1: Yeah, again, uh, for some years, I we, one year we got the Verizon iPhone in January. One year we got an education event. Uh, previous years we had the introduction of the iPad. Uh, we've had Macworld, the introduction of the iPhone. So there was sort of, for a long period of time, there were events that were, there was news in January. And I think last year there was nothing until WEC. And this year, I think it was almost identical to that.
0: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, there's, you know, now that Apple doesn't make, announcements in january or at least they they haven't in recent years um i mean who knows this year in theory they might have a watch event but uh it's pretty much left to ces which apple doesn't take part in yes um for all of the industry news i don't recall anything from this year to 2014 ces that ended up mattering a, a damn bit
1: No, I mean, I think this year will be different just because of HomeKit and HealthKit and CarPlay. But last year, uh, CES was a graveyard. It was just almost like matrix shelf after matrix shelf of cases and nothing else.
0: Yeah, and I don't think they knew what they were going to, you know, going to. The industry as a whole didn't even know what they were trying to make.
1: Yeah, they were making their fitness bands. And I remember the, one of the worst things I saw at CES was an, uh, an Android powered car system, and it was running gingerbread. And the guy told us with a straight face that you could leave it on for five days, but it would drain your car battery. So you had to put it in standby mode. But if you put it, sorry, but if you turned it off, it would take like five minutes to boot again. And this was something that they actually had as a press event.
0: Are you going to CES again this year? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what's uh, Dan Fromer, who was on the show last week, is going for the first time this year. Uh, and like I said with him, I I always talk about going, but I've never gone. But
1: it's alternatively completely barren or incredibly busy, and you never know what's going to happen year right. to year. Um, so I don't have high faith for it. But I think it. I think this year will be different because we will have a watch event. Maybe we'll see another Apple television. Maybe a bigger iPad. Like the spring sounds exciting this year. But last year, up until. Up until June, it really was everyone just saying, "Where's the new stuff from Apple where's the new stuff are they capable of innovating still
0: yeah, why do we have to wait why do we have to wait for them to be ready for something
1: well, that's the thing that I don't understand is do like, would anybody have wanted a two thousand and six iPhone no because it was not a product yet, and the Apple watch won't be a product until early next year. you don't want them to ship what they have right now
0: yeah and it you know to compare and contrast with I think the antithesis of apple's you know we'll let you know when we're ready to show you attitude is google you know who has been you know google glass was clearly released ahead of its time i mean it's still not a still isn't a retail consumer product but the fact that they sold it at all to what did they call the people explorers yes you know yeah. is is the antithesis of apple strategy that would be the equivalent of if apple had let wwdc explorers start wearing and using an apple watch you know 18 months ago
1: running like skank watch software or something right
0: uh and you know the self-driving cars uh, so many things that google does they show way early and in some sense i the the the, the i don't think it's productive and you know Every time I bring it up, some people mention that the cars in particular, it's impossible to do it without showing your hand because there's no way to road test them. You know, you have to road test them in public before you can release them. And there's no way to keep once it's out in the road, you can't keep it secret. So maybe the self-driving cars is a bit of a, a bad example. But, you know, the other products they do, they release. And I think it. I think ultimately it's counterproductive because I think it saps away excitement from the real things you actually have available to sell to people. But on the other hand, it absolutely works to satisfy the desires of the tech press as as a, as an industry because the tech- they, you're giving them something to write about.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly. It. I think for the tech press. Um- Perception really is reality. So if we see a demo of the Moto 240 or 360 or whatever it is, even though it's not real, even though leaving a screen like that on, like what they showed in the video is a complete science fiction fantasy, it sets expectations for that. And it it makes people think that Google's really busy and that product is coming and they're innovating and they're doing all these things. And if it comes out, in some cases, you know, it's a complete turd. But everyone's already seen the video. The excitement's already happened. And then everything else from then on is a disappointment, even things made by Apple or or another company.
0: Yeah, it's. I think Moltz has said it best where he's, you know, I think it's Moltz, but one of his lines is that, you know, Apple's current products continue to fail when compared to the upcoming products in future years from its competitors.
1: It's like the iPhone 5C was a huge disappointment, even though it was the third most popular phone in the world. And the iPad sales are lagging, even though they're, any company in the world would be happy to have that in their product line.
0: Yeah, Or another example I just noticed this week, and it's funny, I haven't linked it up yet, but uh, the same day, or within 24 hours, there was a New York Times story about the success of Apple Pay and about a whole bunch of new retailers who've signed up for it. Um, uh, Some big supermarket chains like Winn-Dixie, which is real big in the south here in the U.S. Um, I forget who else, but some big-name retailers have signed up, um, and... Companies like Whole Foods, who've been on board since it started, who've said that it's you know it accounts for over one percent of their transactions and an enormous percent of you know the digital transactions or what would you call it, cardless transactions. Yep. Um, and at the same time, there were like three or four stories that I saw, all based on the same analyst report about what what uh, what trouble Apple Pay is in because they've woken up. Uh, The mcx partners and really gotten the mcx partners to really want to do a good job And so now apple pays in trouble because mcx is is still coming (laughs)
1: It reminds me of that article, I think it was two weeks ago, where someone said Apple Pay, probably another one of the Forbes contributor networks, that Apple Pay was a huge disappointment because it was only responsible for a very small amount of transactions worldwide. Never mind America didn't have much of equipment for it, and it was only available in America, which which you know, is far behind in terms of NFC. It's amazing what perspective they can bring to it when they try hard enough to put it in a bad light.
0: Right, that there's no other digital, you know, pay-with-your-phone transaction retail thing that's even close to as popular as Apple Pay, but somehow it's a failure because it's still only 1% of the market You know, two months in. Yeah, in one country. Or not even two months, right? It didn't even launch until November, I think, right? Uh, October, I think it came with iOS 8.1. All right, well, still about to, you know, right about two months. Yep. Two months. (laughs) Uh, And it's crazy to me, too, that... um, with the MCX that they don't mention the people who, you know, who want to promote it, which I think, I think it's not because they actually believe it. I think it's, even though they're analysts rather than press, I think it's this, this idea that you want to present everything as a neck and neck battle. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you know, and so Apple pay is threatened by MCX because it's going to be backed by Walmart and whoever else. And they have, you know, huge, huge footprint in, in retail. Um, But they just skip over the most obvious aspects of what has made Apple Pay successful, which is exactly what Tim Cook said on stage when he introduced it, which is, um, you know, it's, it's one of like my biggest recurring mantras about Apple is don't underestimate how often... They're not giving you any spin, any bullshit. Mm -hmm. They're just telling you flat out in plain language exactly why they did what they did. And with Apple Bay, Tim Cook's explanation was, we think everybody else who's tried this to date has failed because they haven't concentrated on the user experience and made that their priority. That's what we've done. We've made it as easy as possible to use, as quick to use, and as privacy protecting as we can, all in the name of the user uh you know and if that's all they did well then who you know what retailer would hook up the equipment but the other things they did secondary to the user focus is use the established infrastructure for nfc payments mm-hmm. and make the banks happy by taking a very minimal cut and by promising significantly increased security um which gets the banks on board because the banks can do the math And I really do think it works out, which is that Apple's little 0.15% cut of the transactions is less than the cost of fraud per per transaction that the banks have been used to.
1: I think that's absolutely true, especially when you look at and the the privacy and the security too. When you look at all the data breaches at the Targets or the Home Depots, but I think you nailed it when you said it, It's aligned with my interests. I've gone to Apple Pay terminals, you know, even the demo one set up at Apple when we were at the event, and they read my Canadian NFC credit card. That technology is not going to just benefit Apple; it's going to benefit everybody who uses any sort of NFC transaction. And you compare that to current car, currency or whatever it's called, and that you have to give the retailer your bank account. You have to have a QR. Code. you have to scan the QR code. And it is such a horrible experience and it's not done to the benefit of the consumer. It's done to try to increase the amount of to save money on transactions that they pay the credit card companies. Never mind how long it's going to how much money it's going to cost them in terms of cashier's fees for the incredibly complicated error-prone system that they're establishing.
0: Right. You can't prove yet that Tim Cook's explanation for, you know, why they thought Apple Pay would be successful and why it seems to be successful to date are true and that cut you know, that a user focused approach is is the way to get it done. And who knows, maybe something like currency will also become popular. Um uh, I don't I, I don't know. I have my <laughs> doubts about currency in particular. But you know, it, it could be that something that's a lot more retailer friendly as opposed to consumer friendly could work. But the evidence to date suggests, you know, that what Apple said was exactly right.
1: It's it's also um I mean, what benefits the retailer is is interesting because uh, me getting through the checkout line really quickly benefits the retailer. And I, I believe it's my understanding that a lot of they, they signed multi-year agreements with currency and with MCX when they started, which was a silly thing to do. But they did it. But I believe a lot of those expire pretty early on this year. And it'll be interesting. Sorry, not this year, but in 2015. And it'll be interesting to see how many of those adopt Apple Pay as soon as they are contractually allowed to.
0: Hmm. Um. And the other thing that I keep thinking about as a technical limitation is the way that there's one thing that Apple Pay has that no other payment system that would work on the iPhone at least. I mean, obviously, like what Google could enable on Android or Microsoft with Windows Phone is different. But at least if you want iPhone using customers, the one thing they have that nobody else can do is the way that it works at the system level rather Mm -hmm. than the app level like and i just can't emphasize enough for anybody out there who hasn't used apple pay yet because you don't have a iphone 6 or because you don't shop at one of the places that that supports it yet but i just can't emphasize enough how 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 it, instead of like feeling like a one step process it almost feels like a zero step process because you don't have to unlock your phone you just take the phone even if it's not on and just get it within an inch of that terminal Put your rest your thumb on the on the reader and it's that's it. It's like nobody else can do that. Like if a currency app on the iPhone, you would have to unlock your phone, open the app. And go from there, which is, you know, it, it doesn't sound like a lot, but compared to Apple Pay, it is a lot.
1: I get upset. I, most places here, I can just tap my card and go. And when it doesn't work, you feel like an animal having to, you know, put it in and put in a pin code or, or swipe it. And I haven't had to swipe or sign something in in over a year. Um, but it, it reminds me of something else and it's a bit of a tangent but I think I think it's the same thing It's it's all goes back to Apple making like the A8 uh, chipset or the A8X chipset in that you take the cameras for instance I take out my iPhone I can just take a picture and all, 9 out of 10 times it's going to be a perf- a really good everyday picture and that's because Apple makes their own image signal processor when you look at uh, Microsoft who buys off the shelf chips they have to put really big glass on the front and collect as much light as they can because they're using, they're using off the shelf chips there's no advantage to them there. Google has no idea what hardware or what software is running on their phones. They try to suck it up to the server and do all the auto awesome stuff. But Apple is just making sure that they have a good camera on it. They'll process it and almost any shot you take will be useful for a normal person. And this that's the same thing. You, you can't get that advantage unless you own the entire stack the way that they do. And now they're moving that into payments and they're moving that into other areas with the iPhone.
0: Yeah. No, you can't underestimate the, the advantage that they have. And I think it, it totally gets written off by these naysaying analysts. What an advantage Apple has by controlling that level of, of the stack.
1: I used to think they were naysaying. And I have, I have a friend who was a sell-side analyst, and he explained it to me. And it's that the press reports analysts as though they're giving comments to readers. And their comments are not meant for their readers. They're meant to manipulate the markets. And what they say is very little to do with what they believe. It, it, right. It's entirely, they probably told their own clients something different two days ago, or three days ago, and now they want to produce results for them. So it's so undependable. I don't know why it gets reported.
0: Right, like an analyst who comes out with a report that seems to be very pessimistic about Apple Pay's long-term prospects might, in fact, honestly, privately, in terms of where he's putting money and advising his clients to put money, being very bullish on the future of Apple Pay.
1: It's like that video with Crane from a couple of years ago where he says, you want to make money, you you spread a rumor saying the iPhone is going to be right. delayed, you call up the news networks, and you tell them it's going to be delayed, then all of a sudden Apple's down and you've shorted all the shares. And I think yeah. that happens a lot. Yeah. What was that guy's name? Jim Kramer,
0: yeah, Jim Kramer. that's it <laughs> yeah,
1: it's it's baffling, but and again, this stuff keeps getting reported as though it's factual accounting on what Apple's doing.
0: Uh, what else in the first half of the year?
1: Uh, I think there was it was Angela I think Angela Aarons was in early on in the year.
0: yeah, I do think so. When was she, she hired? Was
1: definitely like, February, March, yeah, and that's a complete turnaround from John Browett from the previous year, yeah and i think that's super interesting because apple is really doing well in apple stores but some people some people will say that it's a stale experience that they haven't evolved it even though it's working it's hugely successful yeah. but they gave her not only uh, apple retail but apple online as well which used to operate almost as separate businesses and it's similar to giving federici control over both os 10 and ios and that those those sort of artificial walls are falling down and it's providing better service for everybody involved so
0: angela arntz the, her hiring was announced a year ago in October 2013 yep. but she did not start until i believe February or March of of 2014 i've said this before but it, and it seems obvious but it's so clear to me that the reason why why they hired her and why she would take the job is because of the watch yes
1: well, she was uh, CEO of Burberry. and That's a huge job. And people didn't understand why she would become a senior vice president at Apple, even though the senior vice president of retail and, and, and now online as well is a huge job. It's a, it's like being a CEO of another company. But it's still, I think you're exactly right. Apple Apple dangled something in front of her that was a challenge. And people like that want a challenge.
0: Yeah, totally. Uh, and it does seem, it seems, you know, it's not like, we, we haven't really seen the Arntz effect on anything in retail yet. But I don't think there's anybody who doesn't think that that's coming. Yeah. You know, I think that there's half of it, I think, is that changes like that take a lot of time because it or not a lot of time, but a lot of time compared to our industry. Right. Because Mm -hmm. you can't do it digitally. You can't just, you know, have a new store. And, you know, you know, like they do with the online store, put up a sticky note <laughs> for 15 minutes. And then when you come back, it's an all new store. You know, this brick and mortar stuff takes physical, you know, actual time. And, you know, t- to take a store down and put it back up is time when the, you're not making sales. You know, so like in San Francisco, I don't know if the new store is open yet, but they're not putting the new store on the same spot as the old store. They're putting it like on the other corner around the. What's the name of that park? Union Square? Yep. Um, You know, and you can't do that everywhere where Apple has a retail store. You know, most of the ones that are in in shopping malls, you could, I guess, get another spot in the mall, but who knows if there's one, you know, it it all depends on availability that's outside the control of Apple.
1: And they're not like a carrier company who's going to just put a little kiosk out front while the store is closed behind it. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think as the watch starts to deploy into the stores and as the other products start coming online for next year, we're going to see the stores sort of transform to, I, I don't know if fashion is the right word, I think Apple's doing something really interesting where technology is meeting fashion, but it's going to be an Apple store that's, that has to be different than it was in the past.
0: Yeah. Let me see. Anything else? I don't really I see Beats much was, else.
1: Beats, I think, was announced earlier on in the year because they had Dre on the stage for WBDC, so it must have been...
0: May 2014, yeah. Apple to acquire music. Beats music and Beats Electronics. I it's I I don't know that that's major news, but it's because it's not a huge. It's a it's a much bigger transaction than Apple has made. You know, famously, you know, it's mm-hmm. the biggest acqu- acquisition since they acquired Next, which of course you know is the you know turned into like the backbone of the country of the company, um, but. Uh, you know, a five hundred million dollar acquisition in nineteen ninety seven was like yes. was seriously a bet the company acquisition. Whereas a you know three billion or whatever it cost acquisition to get Beats is pocket change. Absolutely. Yeah, three hundred billion, three billion dollars. You know, I mean, you don't want to make a three billion dollar acquisition that doesn't turn out well, but it certainly isn't going to have any meaningful. If it turns out to be a complete bust, it's not going to hurt the company. I think more
1: interesting than the Beats acquisition was just the reactions to it from, it was almost like everyone went through the, the five stages of grief with denial and then anger, and they just couldn't believe it. And it turns out, it, do, it does make some sense. There are, you know, selling headphones at Apple stores makes a lot of sense, and sort of a synergy between iTunes Radio and Beats Music, whatever it ends up being labeled, makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, and I think, I, I don't know. I, I still don't think overall it makes a ton of sense. I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop on it, but... It's In some sense, it does where it's the only other iconic headphone company I can think of. I mean, it has nothing to do with, you know, Marco Arment-style uh, <laughs> quality analysis. But rather, you're out on the sidewalk and you see somebody walking while they're listening to their device. And, you know, those white earbuds that Apple's been making ever since 2001 are truly iconic. I mean, they even had for years an ad campaign That was kind of based on that, right? With the silhouettes, dancing silhouettes who, you know, have white earbuds and a white Y, you know, connector Mm -hmm. draped around their body. They own that, right? Not that other companies, you know, that they have a trademark on it and nobody can make white earbuds, but white earbuds, people see them, they think that's somebody listening to an Apple device. And Beats is the only other company I can think of that has that sort of recognition.
1: Yeah, they have that. They have the cachet that the iPod commercials used to have right. you know, 10 years ago. But I think there's also an element to Eddie Q's organization is just so big, and there's going to be a limit at some point to what he can do. I mean, he's doing Apple Pay now as well, and he does the App Store and the iTunes Store, and he does all the contract negotiations. And if you could have Jimmy Iovine in there doing at least some of that, it takes more stuff off of Eddie Q's desk.
0: Yeah, something I've heard, and it you know I don't think this is surprising. It's probably what everybody was guessing anyway, but... What I have heard recently was that, at least inside Apple, the Beats acquisition is viewed as an Eddie thing, that Eddie, yeah. Eddie, Eddie started it, Eddie pushed for it, Eddie drove it. And not that, that Tim Cook wasn't engaged, and I'm sure that at the negotiation level, he was, in fact, deeply engaged. I mean, I don't think, you know, Tim Cook is not like a don't worry about the details sort of CEO. Um so not to diminish what Tim Cook's role in the negotiations might have been, but in terms of advocating it and, and you know, pushing for it, it was in almost entirely an Eddy thing.
1: And it's interesting because we didn't see anything about iTunes this year. We didn't see continuity for iTunes, for example. We didn't see a new iTunes music service. iTunes Radio still hasn't gone past the U.S. and Australia, I think. And iTunes is an aging platform. It's still based on web objects. It's still based on their original software they used to manage, you know, the music store. And all of that, at some point, you know, it's going to be like a John Syracuse thing where a thousand years from now, this is going to have to be fixed. So what's the point between now and then that it actually gets fixed? And I don't know if Beats has better software or a better solution, but it could also be a catalyst to Apple finally fixing a lot of the um, infrastructure things that they have to do with the iTunes store.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, uh, above and beyond whether it's based on web objects behind the sc- scenes and and all of that, I think it's ever more clear that it's based on a model that just isn't relevant anymore. Um uh, which is here's a song you want and you give a retailer money for it and now you own a copy of it. Yep. That's it's just not that's just that's done. I mean, I'm I'm not done not done in the sense of they're not selling any songs anymore, but that I can't see any way that that ever comes back. Yes, it's it's in permanent decline. It's sort of like what what like what standalone iPods are, you know. It's you know still a decent business, but it's it's never going to increase quarter over quarter. It's just going to go into permanent decline.
1: Yeah, and just like the iPod is being replaced by the iPhone, in some cases the iPad Mini and now larger iPhones, it makes sense for whatever iTunes was for Apple to get in early enough to have whatever iTunes will end up being.
0: Right, and it's a, yeah, and in the same way that it, you know iPods sales decreasing doesn't mean that people are spending less time with gadgets that play music, mm-hmm. in the same way music sales declining doesn't mean people are spending less time listening to music. If anything, they're probably spending more, you know, I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if you did a study and found out that people listen to more music today, or at least time spent listening to music than ever before. It's just that the model is no longer buying and selling.
1: Yeah. It, and it's not, it's not what you had to buy it. It's not what you have to wait in the radio. People can get pretty much what they want when they want, and that opens them up to just consuming it almost nonstop if they All want right. to.
0: All right. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I don't, I'm still not sure what to make of that. If is the Beats thing a, an exception to the rule, just because it is it, it it combines two things that Apple wants to continue being a leader at, which is music listening hardware and uh, digital distribution of legal music. Is it just that that Beats is like a rare perfect storm, you know? acquisition? Or is it the sign of things to come that Apple is going to loosen up and become, you know, a company that that does mid level or to high level acquisitions with some frequency?
1: I think, again, to your point about Apple just saying what they really feel, I think when Tim Cook says they're not religiously opposed to big acquisitions, I think he's absolutely sincere about that. They'll do them when they make sense, but it's got to be something like Beats, where it gives them a hardware product they can sell, the compliments another hardware product, a service they can roll out, the compliments an existing service, and has executives that might be able to, you know, a service. sorry, executives and a culture that can integrate into Apple and help them do the things that they want to do.
0: Right. And it doesn't really, that's the thing that has me. I'm still curious about it, but it doesn't make me worried about it the way that there's any number of other possible 3 billion dollar ish acquisitions that Apple could have made that would raise my spidey sense. Yeah. You know, in a way that Beats doesn't because the biggest thing is that it doesn't fundamentally change any of the areas of focus in Apple's attention. Yeah. Like still you said about, last
1: week with Frommer, it doesn't make them a conglomerate.
0: Right which is exactly what you know to me is like the the first canary I check in the coal mine is is Apple losing focus and becoming more of a conglomerate which mm-hmm. I you know we don't know I mean I don't say that I don't say that Apple becoming a multi-focused conglomerate would be bad we just have no idea and there's no history for Apple as a you know w- Whatever their revenue is, you know, fifty or to hundred billion dollar a year corporation. I mean, you know, they're an uncharted territory. Period. There's, you know, they're the most valuable company, not just in tech but anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but it would be so. It wouldn't be, you know, them making seemingly unfocused acquisitions wouldn't make me sure that they were on the wrong track, but it would make me strongly suspect that they were on the wrong track.
1: Yeah, and you'd wonder how the analysts would treat it because it wouldn't be expected behavior. Google can compete with everybody. They can compete with Amazon, with Apple, with Microsoft, with any tech company in the world and do it all at the same time. And that's fine and interesting and wonderful. Um, but you'd probably, you'd probably hear howls all the way across the valley if Apple started doing that.
0: Yeah, well, and Google can compete with itself. You know, yes. uh, you know Chromebooks versus Android tablets is a perfect example. And I don't even say that that's a mistake. I think it kind of fits with Google's internal culture, whereas if Apple had seemingly confusing overlap between low-end MacBooks and iPads, I I would find that worrisome. Yeah, agreed. Like if Apple had a 399 MacBook, that to me would be very worrisome.
1: I still have in the back of my head this idea that Google bought Android because they were panicked about mobile and then saw webOS and smacked their head and thought that was a way more Google product than buying Android. But but then they were all in on Android and now they're slowly going to get a way to get Chrome OS to a point where that can be their version of webOS.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting that's an interesting argument too because they ended up hiring Matthias Duarte. Yep. Um, did I get his name right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, who was the, you know, lead designer behind web os
1: yeah and they're slowly they're giving sandar pichai control over the stack and he was you know he's the web guy he's android always seemed like an odd product from google because it's a web company and that was very native software
0: yeah and i really do think that that it took a long time for google or for android i should say to um not to not at the low end, but at the sort of mid to high end to get any sort of foothold is that they were in such a deep hole design wise,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, uh, compared to the iPhone that any, you know, even people who, who were inclined not to buy Apple stuff, people who haven't ever bought Apple stuff and sort of want to, you know, it's a natural thing, you know, people who've been sticking with the PC for years, um, and sort of have an, uh, uh, Apple is for other people sort of mindset about the company. Um, you know, in 2011, even through 2012, you go into a store and compare the Android phones to iPhone. And it's, you know, you don't even have to be a, a design critic. You just see that there's a, a serious difference in fit and finish in the software
1: it was a very different priority i mean apple famously wanted to get you know that the, the animation just absolutely nailed even on the first generation iphone but they didn't they didn't need to have every single feature crammed in there where android was it, it wasn't designed to be a phone for everybody it was designed to be a phone that would protect google's uh, share of, of the web because they rightly believed web was moving mobile and their priority wasn't that sort of interactivity they wanted to get they, they bought you know android and they they made it work but i remember even last year at ces i was sitting there with the nexus 4 five trying to use gmail and just cursing out loud and brian klug from formerly of anantech came over and quickly put it in developer mode and the screen went bright red and he said that's because they're redrawing every cell four or five times trying to hope that it would stick and it's just and their graphics their own graphics engineers couldn't get their own uh, gmail engineers to properly code all of it And i think that's why they've really locked things down now with material design and and all the new things, but it, it took them four or five years to fix the massive architectural problems that were causing poor interaction.
0: Right, and the difference with WebOS is that WebOS, right from the get-go, it had performance problems because of the whole architecture of building it on top of, uh, like, a WebKit rendering engine, and combined with the state of mobile hardware in, what was it, 2009 when, yeah. when, when the pre-came out? Yeah. Um, but... I you know in terms of an uh, an elegant software interface, I mean, I mean you could still to this day I think you could argue that the way that WebOS handled notifications is the best design anybody's come up with.
1: Absolutely, there's synergies. I mean, it, it was almost. Uh the fringe universe version of the iPhone, if if uh, John Rubinstein had won the keyboard argument, uh, or if, um, what's his name, had won the, the Linux argument, or if the people who wanted to use WebKit as the interface instead of creating UIKit had won that argument, that could have been an Apple product. Right, Tony instead, Fidel. Tony Fidel, yeah. yeah. But instead, they all ended up at Palm making, except for Fidel uh, Rubinstein and, and, and the Web the WebKit engineers ended up at Palm making their version of the iPhone.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I If you would have shown, if you would have taken a, a Palm Pre back in time to, you know, 1998, 1997, and shown it to my then self and said, "What comp-, you know, this is a product from 2009. What company made it? You know, scrub the logos off. I would have guessed Apple yeah, without question, especially if you just showed me the software and not the hardware. The hardware was a lot less apple but the software was extremely apple in my opinion. Everything okay. from the font choice to... You know, the roundness, you know, the rounded corners of the screen, the rounded corners of the cards on the screen. Um, I, I think it was a very Apple DNA product software wise.
1: I've never seen the P1 phone that Fidel's group was working on. But in I, I've always suspected that if that had been the phone that had got the gone ahead, if for some reason P2 hadn't worked out and uh, Forrestal's group hadn't been able to make the iPhone, that could have ended up being very similar to what the Palm Pre was.
0: Yeah. And so it's interesting to think, hypothetically, what would have happened if Google had purchased, had somehow obtained WebOS instead of Android and pushed for it. Because in some sense, the problems that WebOS had were, I think, not solvable by throwing money at them, but more easily solved by throwing money at it than Android. Because yes. with Android, it was, to me, fundamentally, the fact that it was designed at the outset as a sort of BlackBerry-style mm-hmm. You know, that it was going to, you know, a BlackBerry style mobile interface, keyboard, up, down, left, right, select, Um, and therefore had no, 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 at a foundation level aspect of, of a rich graphical interface with playful animations and high frame rates and stuff like that.
1: I've told this story before, but when I reviewed the G1, the very first Android phone that came out, I turned on the Snake game and it said, press up to start. And I tried you know, swiping up on the screen. Then I tried pressing the up arrow key. Then I tried pressing the up joy pad. And then I tried pressing up on whatever the other thing was on the other side. I tried eight different ways of signaling up and I couldn't get it to work. But there were eight different ways of signaling up. Right. And that, to me, defined the, the, the very early years of Android. You know, My,
0: I remember too that it was the only way to select text was to use the up, down, left, right. There was no way to touch on the screen to select text. You had to, you know, more or less use like arrow keys.
1: And the original one, you you'd close the keyboard, and there'd be the the Google search box just blinking at you, wanting you to input text, but there was no virtual keyboard, so you couldn't input
0: text. <laughs> I remember that too. <laughs>
1: And that's sort of the problems they were facing, and and Palm was a tiny team, and they they coded circles around Google when it came to phones in two thousand nine.
0: So anyway, that's an interesting what if. I, it's and to me, it's of the last uh, of the of the post PC era. You know, from mid two thousand seven on, the great tragedy of the whole thing is is that WebOS never, you know, didn't get a long enough time to to try to gain a foothold. Agreed. You know, I mean, I I think it was a more elegant design than Windows Phone. And Absolutely. so just imagine if they had had somebody with the wherewithal that Microsoft has shown with Windows Phone to stick behind WebOS, you know, and, you know, push the software forward, break some of the bottle, performance bottlenecks. But also just let Moore's Law help you out mm-hmm. year after year, you know, two, three years later, WebOS I think would have been a lot more, um, it, without even any software op- optimizations, would have been a lot more tenable performance-wise.
1: Absolutely. I mean, they had no secondary source of income. Apple had Mac money originally. Google had search money. Even Samsung had appliance money. Uh, Palm and now BlackBerry—they have no additional sources of income, and so everything becomes everything becomes bet the company. Every phone you put out becomes bet the company.
0: Yeah. All right, let me take a break and thank our first sponsor this week, and it is our very good friends at Backblaze. You guys know Backblaze, unlimited, unthrottled backup for Mac. They have over 100 petabytes of total data backed up. They just crossed the 6 billion files restored mark. That means users of Backblaze have used them to restore or download or get on another device over 6 billion files. Uh, they have an iPhone app that lets you access and share any of your files. So when your Mac's backed up to Backblaze, you're out and about. All you have with you is your phone, um, and you want to get a file from your Mac. Just log into, just open the Backblaze app, and there's all your files. Get it. You can email it to someone right from there. Uh, no need to do anything more complicated than that. Couldn't be easier. Uh, you can restore one file or all your files easily uh, with their web restore. Twenty five percent of all Backblaze restores are for just one file. So it's not just for computer disasters. But if you do have a computer disaster, somebody steals your Mac, somebody breaks in your house, takes, takes, your, takes your Mac, takes your backup drive, um, your roof leaks, water leaks all over your computer, ruins your hard drive, ruins your time machine. Uh, you need to, you know, true total disaster. You can just, you don't have to wait and download all of your stuff from Backblaze over the internet. You could just go there, say, put it all on a, on a USB hard drive, and boom, they'll FedEx it to you. And, you know, like a day or two later, there's a USB hard drive with all of your files on it, ready for you to uh, restore to a, a new computer. The software's written by the the companies founded by a- Apple X uh, engineers. Uh, the software runs totally native on your Mac, uh, runs great on Yosemite, runs great on Mavericks. Uh Couldn't be installed more easily. Couldn't be more invisible in the background while it's running. Uh, Just great, great service for an amazing price. Five bucks a month per Mac. Unlimited. No limits on how much data you can upload. Five bucks a month. So you can get a risk-free, no credit card required trial by going here. Backblaze.com slash DaringFireball. It, it, I, you're nuts if you haven't done it and if you're listening to this over the holidays um, sign sign your parents up for it just go to, when you're at your parents house or for Christmas or whatever just sign them up for backblaze and and give it to them it's a great little gift uh, they won't thank you for it until they need it but then when they need it they'll think you're a superhero so put all your all your relatives on backblaze uh, my thanks to them so the first big Apple news of the year 2014 really didn't come till WWdc yep. What an event. Yeah, I think it was It's certainly, it still seems like, it doesn't seem like as long ago as it is. It doesn't feel like six months ago.
1: No, it was amazing because I, I was sitting with you and uh, Jason Snell and John Siracusa, um, and different people were just lighting up at different parts of that event. It was just such a palpable reaction for them.
0: Syracuse and Swift,
1: right? Well, he turned to Snell and he goes, am I dreaming? Because if I'm, you you should tell me because I might be in a fugue state. I don't know if this is real or not. Please (laughs) tell me that I'm actually listening to what I'm listening to.
0: Uh, That was certainly big news. Uh, You know, iOS 8 and Yosemite. It was the first time we got to look at Yosemite. Yeah. And I think, you know, certain, uh, how should we say it? Not like a specific, you know, like here's three lines of code. Copy these exactly. This is how you do X, the recommended way. But more in terms of like broad strokes philosophy, I think Apple started pushing a couple of new things. Not necessarily for the first time, but uh, two examples I can think of was the heavy focus on dynamic user interface layout. Yeah, uh, clearly pre-shadowing. You know, pre. You know, it, it, in in the run-up to the iphone 6 and 6 plus um but i think in the long run more envisioning a a world of, of ios devices where there's a continuum of screen sizes you know and who knows maybe eventually something smaller than four inches um and you know by all accounts maybe one of the things you know that we'll be hearing about in 20 early parts of 2015 would be a bigger screen, some kind of iPad that's bigger than 9.7 inches, and not having to, you know, code a custom user interface for each size in that continuum. It's a definite it's a huge change from the way iOS development was until recently. And it's, you know, it it wasn't just about supporting the iPhone six and six plus. The way I
1: look at it, there's there was the, introduc- the sorry, the integration theme, which we'll probably get to. But the other big theme was this transition from push from pull to push, where previously the interface was locked to the device, and then slowly but surely, with things like AirPlay and CarPlay and now WatchKit, the interface is actually decoupled. So you have the logic on one device and the interface going somewhere else, or you have the logic for the app, but the interface being able to be flexible between you know the four-inch screen size, four point seven, six-inch. Uh, now that you have split view controllers on the the iPhone 6 Plus. It's sort of like a mini iPad. So like you said, it can scale across those things, but it's it's all sort of one central part of logic. And then you add extensibility to it where previously you had to hunt around your iPhone for anything. You had to go between six different photo apps just to just to get the effects you wanted. You had to leave to, to reply to a message. You had to leave if you wanted to share to Tumblr. You couldn't do that from where you were. You had to go to the Tumblr app and do it. And now all of that functionality has come to one place. All of that is now independent. You have these remote views. And to me, that's made, that that sort of severing of that one unit into these more modular parts has really made a huge difference, not just in my workflow, but where I think Apple could take all these. I think it kind of, it's the first big hint of much larger plans they have moving forward with these devices.
0: Right. And you mentioned both CarPlay, which is, that's how CarPlay works, where CarPlay is a dumb terminal, mm-hmm. effectively. And, you know, take your iPhone out of Bluetooth range and the only thing the screen is going to show you in your car is the the stuff from the manufacturer. You're not going to get any of the Apple Play stuff or CarPlay stuff. No iOS at all. Um, It's only, a, it's really just effectively a projector. Your iPhone is doing all of the computation. Your iPhone is all of the storage. Your iPhone is doing the networking for anything that's coming over cellular. And the only thing that the screen in your car does is show you what the iPhone is showing and report back to the phone where you're stabbing your fingers at it. Yep. Uh, and the watch, you know, as we now know, and as, you know, countless people have, have you know, the, the, the initial WatchKit SDK shows, um, for th- the first round of third-party apps pretty much works the same way. You don't get to run any code. There's no part of watch this initial watch kit where your, your app runs code on the watch. Mm-hmm. It's just a projected display of what your phone app, your iPhone app, is showing it. And then the watch just reports back what you tapped on.
1: I would like that everywhere. I mean, I I like the idea of CarPlay. I bought the the, um, Toyota car before they had any integration at all. And my only option is to buy a new car if I want anything. But with CarPlay, every time I upgrade iOS or upgrade my phone, I get a better experience. I'd like that on my camera. I'd like CameraPlay so that my Canon interface is replaced with iOS. I don't want to have Android appliances at home. I want to have them running iOS. Just anytime there's a screen, I would eventually like to be able to just put iOS, like project iOS right onto it.
0: Ooh. Doing that with a camera like a Canon or, you know, like a serious, serious camera would be fascinating. I mean, I'd there is that. a move afoot in the in the camera world to build in Wi Fi, but it's, I don't, and I don't have a camera that does it yet. You know, my, my Fuji uh, X100S is a year off. Like the brand new X100T, which just came out a few weeks ago, and I, I linked to a review of it a couple of days ago now has Wi Fi, but it's clunky, like the only way to get it to work. I haven't seen it. But it's like you have to get a Fuji app from the App Store, and then open the Fuji app on your phone. And then you can do something between your phone and the uh, camera, whereas having it be like CarPlay, man, that would be fantastic.
1: And it's great for Apple because they're never going to get into – well, never is a long time, but they're not going to get into making appliances. They're not going to become a giant manufacturing conglomerate like Samsung. And they're not going to license iOS the way that you know, Android is e- easily able to be put on any device. But just projecting the interface, it means they can still control it. They, in essence, just take it over. And I, the customer will have a great experience, and they don't have to relinquish any of the control that they need for products.
0: Yeah. It almost, to me, takes cameras back to where they were pre-digital, right, where if, when you load it, had a 35-millimeter film camera the only things you, the camera did was let you take pictures, right? You would look the a finder and see, and the camera would have things like a light set, you know, in the latter years, yeah, obviously in the early years, you had to set all that stuff manually, but by the, you know, by the latter years of the tail end of the film world, you know, it would do the exposure. If you set things to auto, it would, you know, set the aperture, set the uh, exposure time. Um, And then but it was all just about letting you take the next photo, then you'd push the button and the photo would be taken, it would be stored on the film. And that was it. Right? I would like a digital camera that worked like that, do whatever you can to help me get a perfect exposure and focus, you know, set the focus distance, give me a recommended aperture, give me a recommended exposure time, or let me set any of those variables manually if I choose to. And then when I hit click, it should just store the photo and then let me do everything else over a wireless connection to my iPhone.
1: I, I would love that uh, for a couple of reasons. One, if you don't have an iPhone, you would just get whatever the Cunix CarPlay system is, you know, for the whatever the standard software is on the phone. But if you do have it, you get a better experience and that becomes the same reason you'd want to get CarPlay. You know, yeah. you this stuff all works better if you happen to have an iPhone.
0: Yeah, boy, that would be great. Yeah. But I do totally think that you know, the WWDC 2014 heralded that sort of, you know, future.
1: I think so too. And I think we also see, for example, continuity is going to work on the watch because there's going to be things on the watch. The watch to me is total convenience play. It's for all those thousands of tiny interactions that you have with your phone every day that aren't, that, are, that don't take a lot of time, but are super important, yet you still have to go to your bag or go to your purse or go to your pocket. And I can sort of shift those to my watch. But if something ends up being more important than I thought it was, being able to just send that right back to my phone and continue it on my phone. Sync is great, but with Sync, I still have to unlock the phone, go find the app, go to the same place what I was, scroll through or try to find it. But with continuity, I, I'm I can be looking at something, press a button, and that exact same thing is just there waiting for me again. I think that's going to be much, much more interesting when the watch is in play.
0: Yeah, I do. And I think a lot of these things are sort of breaking. It goes back to what I said earlier about Apple pay, where it's at a, a, from a user's perspective, it's outside the app centric world of using the phone itself. It's, it's much more about the real physical world where your phone is just within the Bluetooth and or Fi, you know, wireless range of whatever terminal you're dealing with whether the terminal is your watch whether it's your dashboard in your car and you just tap on the watch and things get started you don't have to wake up your phone you don't and you definitely don't have to find any particular app like a fuji app yeah. to get you know <laughs> to get this to work you're just on your camera and hit a button on your camera and you know the phone interface just wakes up and starts you know can read those photos that are right on your phone
1: Yeah, the phone becomes like the star destroyer, and the watch becomes the shuttlecraft that moves you in between the big
0: objects. (laughs) That's pretty good. I like that. Um, what else from WWDC? I guess Yosemite. We could, yeah. You know, and in the summer there wasn't really any news per se. It was just you know betas of iOS and Yosemite. Not a bad way to just roll into. If we're gonna talk 2014 in hindsight, I mean. Have to talk Yosemite.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, Dave Wiskus did an article on MacWorld right beforehand, where he was sort of speculating of what Yosemite would end up looking like, and I, I think he was really, really close. It's like Apple didn't just clone iOS seven, which was a long running joke. Uh, they they sort of took the cues from it, the translucency and and the other effects, and they made something that was very Mac, and you know, they kept the shadows, for example.
0: Yeah, our example when Dave and I were uh, noodling ideas for Vesper Mac before we saw yosemite and we thought well what if they do totally just go all in ios 7 look and feel and we the only thing we could come up with was the the icloud web apps yeah. which are you know you you use them with a mouse pointer and you know i think t- typically i don't even think they run on an ipad uh so i mean you're, you're using it on a mac and they have some things like dialogue boxes that you know you know, it's like a you know, how would you do an iOS seven dialog box with a mouse pointer? Um, but overall, boy, we looked at that and we were like, boy, I hope that's not it. Yeah. No, and well, it, it wasn't.
1: To, it, it had to be enough because they they did that back to the Mac event and they they changed the names of the apps and they they brought over the same look and feel and they really made an effort to get all the people who had iOS devices. Not, not to make the Mac the same, but to make them comfortable, to make an easy sort of a halo effect transition. And when you look at Yosemite and you look at continuity, it's just about adding value. I, again, if you have an iPhone or iPad, you'll have a much better experience with a Mac.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I do think too, that it shows and part of it is, you know, our perspective where we get to go to these press events and talk to some of the people at Apple, like in the product marketing group. Um, and there's a, Palpable sense. I mean, you, there's some things that they just it just never come up. I mean, nobody really spends a long time talking about the. We don't even call them that anymore, but like the iWorks apps, yeah. right? Like Pages and Numbers and Keynote. They they you know there's there hasn't been a lot of enthusiasm about those apps in in recent years. I'm not saying there's none. I'm just saying that it's it, you know I I think it shows in the real world and uh, you know in this current state of those apps. And I think it shows in the enthusiasm when you talk to people at Apple privately. But whereas, like, the Mac overall and Yosemite overall, like, there were people, there's people at Apple who just still love the Mac. Like, as a whole, it is not like the, you know, forgotten first child, you know, brushed aside in favor of the beloved, you know, iOS, you know.
1: I wonder if that has anything to do with the Mac, like Yosemite being very firmly in Federighi's org, but things like iWork and iTunes all being projects that are run by in Q's org. You know, almost like a totally secondary software development system.
0: I do wonder about that, and I don't know if it's because it's any way to uh, to slag Eddie Q, but almost that he's got so much on his yeah. plate that how could it get any more of his attention? You know, with how much that he's got on his plate
1: and you don't have the federica you know like the one guy who's in charge of software engineering isn't in charge of those bits of software engineering
0: yeah. but as a whole i i you know this year i i've i think that the people i've spoken to at apple were more excited about yosemite and what's new on the mac than ios8 and you know and a lot of it is hard to separate because so much of what's new about both ios8 and yosemite is the continuity stuff which ties them together and there is no one without the other
1: that was one of the most impressive things to me because famously iOS and OS 10 used to be run separately uh, and there was a big rework but not only that it's it's it filtered down so instead of having someone in charge of Yosemite and someone in charge of iOS, the person who was in charge of extensibility or the at least the engineering product manager uh, Program manager was in charge of extensibility for iOS and OS X. Was in charge of continuity for iOS and iOS X. And even when it would have been easier to do them separately or to do them in different ways, they made sure that they were done in the same way. So developers had just one way to target them on both systems. And that might be a subtle change, but I think that's a really profound change based on how Apple used to be run.
0: Yeah, and I, I you know, it's a recurring theme, you know, since he left the company, but you know, with Forstall. And again, I, overall, I'm a big fan of Forstall. And I think, you know, Forst, Scott Forstall is a huge reason that the iPhone was a hit product and Absolutely. was as good as it was. I think he is a huge reason that the App Store exists and that it's as popular as it is. Problems aside, and we can get into that because there's been a lot of recent, you know, problems with the App Store. But on the whole, you know, it's. Uh, uh, you know, a success. And you know, at a time when in 2007, when the first iPhone came out, and there wasn't any third party software at all. And there were questions about whether there ever would be. And then even when it was announced, well, how how strict are they going to keep this? How much is it going to be a handful of apps that Apple vets? And how much is it going to be? You know, are they going to allow 10s of 1000s, 100s, of 1000s of apps? Um, I think all of that is thanks to forestall or at least, at least partly thanks to Forstall. Absolutely. But Please. on the other hand, I don't think continuity happens all in one fell swoop in 2014 if Forstall is still running iOS as his own fiefdom. Because the way he ran it was secretly, even when it wasn't new, you know, even, you know, it, you know, 20, uh, 2012, I guess, when he got pushed out, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Yeah, I think he was a phenomenal partner for Steve Jobs. I mean, you, you hear stories about when he was at Apple, uh, he 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 knew which of the three studded leather textures uh, Steve would pick. And when he wasn't there, the designers just kept hearing no and no and no over and over again. And he was just so good at working with Steve Jobs. But then, you know, he faced an Apple without Steve Jobs. And it's possible that he was the best person in the world to, to birth the iPhone, but not the best person to get it through the awkward teenage years, yeah. and we'll see that with the watch now because Kevin Lynch runs watch software at Apple. It's not in Craig Federighi's org, but that's sort of what you have to do when you're creating something new. You have to give it that sort of independent space to come alive, and then you integrate it back again over time.
0: Right, but even with Lynch, and and you know that's a good open question as to, in terms of like what to look look for in 2015. Um, you know, is how good is their initial watch software going to be, um, and you know. Whether it's fair or not, you know, how good the initial, like when we get our first Apple Watch 1.0 in, quote, early 2015, um, we're going to, f- we're all going to f- form pretty firm opinions of Kevin Lynch as an Apple product manager, mm-hmm. you know, right off the bat. Um, But Lynch was hired into an Apple where, you know, he could be told point blank, and I'm sure was, this is how we work now, we collaborate, yes. you know. And I think that's why you see, you know, that, you know, Schiller's already wearing an Apple Watch, Eddie Q's wearing an Apple Watch, um, Frederigi is wearing an Apple Watch, you know, that they're not locked out of that in a way that I think a lot of people were with the iPhone before it came out.
1: And the other thing that, I mean, I've heard really good things about Kevin Lynch's work at Apple. Like He he, he sounds like he's doing a great job, but also while the watch stuff is separate, uh, for example, like, I don't know this for a fact, but it, so, it sounds to me like the messages is not being, like, if you're working on watch messages, you're not allowed to talk to the guy working on iOS or Mac messages. It sounds like that's not the case, that the messages group, you know, spans across from that, which is what you right. want, because otherwise it's going to create a broken experience.
0: Yeah, I do. I think that's absolutely the case Where where he, you know. It might be separate from Federighi's stuff, but in a sense, it's not because it's, Federighi isn't trusted with it or he's not yeah. part of it, but that he's already got enough on his plate. And they need – this is such a big undertaking that it needs its own point person and team, but they're not – I think the difference is maybe maybe the word is fiefdom. You know, that iOS was run by Scott Forstall as his own fiefdom within the company, and that's not the case with the watch. Yeah.
1: And I was talking to Brad else about this last week, but you, you look at the design cues of the watch and you start to imagine. I mean, it's not just a copy of iOS 7 or a copy of Yosemite. It is it is being given the room to be its own thing, to sort of establish its own identity as well.
0: Yeah, I almost get the sense that it, if there's anything that holds up as an analogy, it's almost like the watch OS is to iOS what iOS was to macOS. Yeah. You know, that, yes, we're not throwing everything out. The kernel, it might be the exact same kernel there's there it might be a UI kit uh, that's doing drawing.
1: It runs but, front board like the iPhone runs front board.
0: Right. Uh, but that it's it's just about base, you know, using the technology that makes sense to reuse, but but stripping it down to a level that's appropriate for this new dramatically lesser form factor. Yeah. But the the strategic Aspects of how the software runs couldn't be more different from the original iPhone, where the original iPhone only had this tangential relationship with your Mac, Mm -hmm. which was connect a 30 pin connector and a USB (laughs) cord to the two and hit a, you know, sync and wait and have. You know, I, I still think it's almost seems prehistoric. I can't yeah. believe it's only seven years ago, but that's the only way you got calendar <laughs> events onto your phone or back to your Mac if you created the event on your phone. It's the only way you could sync calendar events, the only way you could sync contacts. Um it's crazy that you only you had to do all that tethered. But then once you untethered, your phone was a completely iPhone was a completely independent device that had to do everything. Yeah any kind of computation was done on the CPU on the phone. All of the drawing was done on the GPU on the phone and the watch, at least for third party software is largely just a projected screen where it's doing the least work possible.
1: Yeah. It's almost like, uh, the, the web app solution for the original iPhone, where it, when you no longer connected to the internet, nothing can update when you're not, when your phone's no longer in vicinity, nothing can update. Right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh Let's take a break and we'll come back and talk more Yosemite. Um, but I want to thank our second sponsor. And it's another longtime friend of the show, our good friends at lynda.com. L Y N D A.com. com. lynda.com is an easy and affordable way to help you learn. Learn what? Well, just about anything. From programming to photography to design uh, to audio editing. Even... Uh, Even stuff like negotiation skills, they have classes on that. It's amazing the breadth of their library. You instantly stream thousands of courses created by experts on software, web development, graphic design, any of those things, and watch them right on your computer. Fresh content, there's new courses added daily. They work directly with industry experts and software companies to provide timely training, often the same day that new versions or releases of apps or products or services hit the market. So if you want to learn something new, new version of Lightroom comes out, guess what? You can learn everything that's new from lynda.com right away. Uh, Easy to learn, high quality, easy to follow. Their video tutorials are produced at the highest quality. Uh, Courses are broken down into bite-sized pieces so you can learn at your own pace and learn from start to finish or just find a quick answer. Uh, They have beginning level stuff, mid-level stuff, and expert level courses. Uh, they have great, great tools, including searchable transcripts, super, super important. If you're looking back to find something that you knew you saw a couple weeks ago in a course and you can't find it and you know, you know what it is, you want to search for it. Well, they've got it because all of their stuff has transcripts. You can make playlists, um, and they even have stuff like certificates. So like when you finish a course, you can publish in your LinkedIn profile, a certificate of which lynda.com courses you've completed. Uh, They have mobile apps so you can learn on the go with uh, your iPhone, iPad, even Android. And if you get a premium account, you can download the courses to your mobile device like your iPad, your iPhone, and watch them offline. Uh, Premium plan members can also download project files and practice along with the instructor. So how do you get all this? Do you pay for it? by the video? Nope. One low monthly price. You pay 25 bucks per month, and that gives you unlimited access to over 100,000 video tutorials. The whole library. You pay 25 bucks a month, you get everything. Uh, now you might be thinking, well, 25 bucks a month, that's actually not cheap. That's 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 a lot of money. Uh, here's how confident lynda.com is in their service. They have a special deal just for listeners of the show. Go to lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A.com, slash the talk show, with "the," And for the next seven days, you can access everything for free. No credit card up front. Just go there, lynda.com, slash the talk show. They'll know you're coming from the show. Uh, and for seven days, you can watch everything they have, unlimited. That's and And see for yourself how good this stuff is. And that's how confident they are that at the end of that period, you're going to jump at the chance to sign up for an account and stick with them. Uh, Really, really good stuff. I've I've used it for several things. It's really, really can't can't say good enough just how high quality lynda.com's material is. So my thanks to them and check them out at lynda.com slash the talk show. Yeah. Do you still have any machines that are running Mavericks, Renee? I
1: don't. I waited a year to upgrade from uh, Mountain Lion to Mavericks on my podcast machine, and I think I lasted a month before putting Yosemite on it.
0: I still have the the Air that I use to record these shows, uh, like I'm recording right now using my my old MacBook Air, still runs the the latest version of Mavericks. And it's funny how it, it feels to me like it's years old. Yeah. Like, I can't, I was just thinking before we started recording and thinking about the, you know, year old, I was like, I wonder how long I, how long, how out of date am I? And then I realized I'm really only like, still only like two months out of date, but it looks ancient to my eyes. Just the wallpaper, when you see the Mavericks wallpaper, it, it feels like a bygone era. Yeah, I think so. But it's the, to me, it's the fonts, you mm-hmm. know, and the the heaviness of the buttons.
1: It's, yeah, it's it's a much heavier, more dour uh, experience, and that's probably why I upgraded. I just I, I would look at it when I'd podcast, and it would just look wrong to me.
0: Uh, and it was the visuals, I think, more than anything else that encouraged me to upgrade. Yeah, I think I over the holiday break, I'm going to upgrade this machine too. I can't think of a good reason to keep one around anymore either. There's nothing, you know, it's really just out of laziness. And the fact that I don't use this machine for much anymore, um, it just happens to be all set up with the, you know, software i used to record the shows and so it's it's sort of like an if it ain't broke don't fix it situation but it just staring at it, it just looks ugly
1: yeah and i got the retina 5k imac after the event i just couldn't un unsee it and you know that shipped with um that shipped with uh yosemite yeah and i was just all in
0: yeah um I've also grown to be completely I don't I wouldn't quite say in love but I'm completely accustomed to the the system version of Helvetica Noia as the system font.
1: It's it looks so good on a Retina. We were arguing the other day whether it, you would prefer to have something like San Francisco or the mythical Apple songs if if they ever shipped it. But they they did a really great job of putting Helvetica Neue on on the Mac. Do you have any idea whether San Francisco is Apple Sands? I've heard that it isn't. I don't know if that's true or not because I haven't heard it from a lot of people, but I heard an offhand comment that it wasn't.
0: I wouldn't be surprised if it's not, but I have no no idea. Like the little birdies that told me about Apple Sands and the little birdies that told me about San Francisco. Or well, they didn't really tell me about it. I didn't know about it in advance, but uh but that told me that internally they were calling it Dinvetica. <laughs> um But nobody's told me whether they're one and the same. And I can't help but think that they're not the same.
1: I mean, it's hard to interpret it because it's almost like reading smoke signals. And it could just mean that this is an optimized version of Apple songs for the watch. And that's why they're considered different. But
0: it struck me that they were different. Yeah. The thing I've found playing with San Francisco is that it really only looks good very, very small. I mean, and from my hands-on time, you know, months ago at the Apple Watch event, I thought it looked fantastic up close, like just really, really looked good. Um, Playing with it on my Mac, now that we have the SDK, it doesn't really look good to me at the sizes that I use fonts on the Mac.
1: Yeah, it's not optimized.
0: Right. And I tried the, uh, I think I mentioned this a few shows ago, but I tried, there's like a GitHub thing with hacked versions of San Francisco that have metadata set that make it look like they tell the system it's the system font. And if you put them in, I, I I don't recommend anybody try this because it's you know hacking with your system, and you're on your own. But more or less, what you do is you put these hacked versions, and also it's you know like a copyright violation and a direct um, violation of the terms of the SDK download that that you you're not allowed to diddle with the San Francisco font, and you're expressly not allowed to use it for anything other than developing yep. WatchKit apps. Um, but what you could do is go to <laughs> find this project on GitHub. Download these versions of the fonts, which are different from Apple's versions. There's some kind of metadata that's set that tells the system, hey, this is the system font. You put them in at slash library or, yeah, slash library fonts, slash library slash fonts. And you can't put them in your user fonts file, not, you, you know, users, your name, library fonts. Because the system won't look there for system fonts. The system looks first in slash system library fonts, and that's your Helvetica system font is still there. You're not replacing it. You're not deleting it. You're not renaming it. You're not moving it. But then the system will look in slash library fonts, and if it finds another system font there, it'll use that one instead. So you just put these font files there. Uh, log out, log back in, and Yosemite, you know, will draw as with the system font. It'll use San Francisco. Um, so I tried it just to see what it was like, and it's it just doesn't work. Like it's it's not that it doesn't work. Like it's broken, and it you know it's you know a, a technical failure. Just aesthetically, it's just kind of not right.
1: Which is interesting because I didn't think I'd like Helvetica on the Mac as much as I did. But then uh, after the Apple TV update, which came much after you, much after WWC, and now I'm seeing Helvetica on my Apple TV. That is much more. Every time I see it, I get a little reaction to
0: it. Yeah. And it feels, it's somehow crazy to me how Apple has made it a font that is available to everyone anywhere yeah. uh, feel like they own it.
1: Yeah. And it, it just, when they use it, it's, it's such an established font. It's such a classic and yet it feels so modern in the way that they're using it.
0: Yeah. But I don't think, I, at San Francisco to me, it's, it's completely designed, I think, for the watch. And it's yeah. meant to be used at watch-like sizes, which are physically very, very small. Like the biggest you're ever going to see text on your Apple Watch is a pretty small size.
1: It's it's sort of in context. Like I know you've spoken about this on previous shows with the vibrancy and you know and some people turn it off, but I've even gotten used to that. I've gotten used to seeing areas of red or black or, or things and it, it just I, I don't buy the argument that it brings a desktop through, but it does sort of of make the whole system seem more alive.
0: Yeah, I'm, but I was no doubt that, uh, like Syracuse has mentioned several times, there's no doubt that that's going to get toned down yeah. next year and a year after, you know, that they start out with taking an idea to the maximal level and then over the years dial it back to where it should be. But they, you know, Apple as a, as a company tends to err on the side of taking an idea too far than take, not taking it far enough.
1: And it's also they're very – for a giant company, they have, they have a lot of respect for the singular designer vision. Like the person who designed Yosemite had a lot of ideas. And those ideas, not all of them made it through, but a lot of them did. In a lot of companies, it would have fallen to design by committee very quickly.
0: Yeah. Um, so I think overall, Yosemite has been a pretty, pretty strong success.
1: Yeah, agreed completely.
0: And for all the bugs that iOS eight had and you know hit so many people, I think I, I think Yosemite has been pretty stable and, and uh, you know deserves applause right from the get go for for being pretty trouble free if you were an early adopter.
1: They had a couple Wi-Fi patch, and Wi-Fi and Bluetooth seem to be something that just affects some percentage of people every time. They had some security things. Uh, even today, they, they patched it, I think it was yesterday, they're, they're patching security now faster than they've ever done before. Yeah, It's it's really a new age in, in at least the delivery of Mac software.
0: Yeah, today, as we record, we're recording on December 23rd, and uh, it might have rolled out, I think it rolled out last night, I at least so. on US time. But within the t- 24 hours that we're recording as as we speak, there was a a bug fix that Apple rolled out that for the first time ever, they pushed to uh, at least Yosemite. I don't know if Mavericks got the push, but if you're running Yosemite, I got the notification. Like when I logged in this morning, it just said a security update was applied. Yeah. And that's it. It's like, you know, and I, you know, it's a lot of pressure for them because if they ever pushed one of those that did break things, it's there, it's going to be, you know, quite a scandal yeah but. i
1: mean they're paying close attention to that stuff now but it's sort of we complained that they weren't being fast enough with security updates and at right. a certain point they just you know pick up the pace
0: yeah and i you know the 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 thanks for that the applause for that is never as loud as the criticism beforehand no no not no at all. it does seem like they're getting faster um i can't help but think that with the bluetooth and wi-fi that it must it must just be that the matrix of how many different Wi-fi chipsets there are in all the supported Macs that run Yosemite multiplied by all the various chipsets in the Wi-fi yeah. routers out in the real world is just it, it it's just a testing nightmare yeah. like it, you know you, you know it's almost we're almost lucky that it works at all because uh, it, it t- just happens over and over and over again
1: I just run all Apple stuff, and I've never had a Wi-Fi or Bluetooth problem. But I imagine when you, like you said, if you have every single vendor in there and every single variant, you're gonna you're gonna hit whatever bugs are in both those stacks fairly often.
0: Yeah, I have an Apple router downstairs. I think it's the latest, whatever Extreme. I don't yeah. know what they call it anymore, but the one that's tall. Um, and I have for years, and I've never hit, been hit with those problems either, because I'm surely you know every single standard Apple Wi-Fi chipset in a Mac. It does get tested against Apple's own routers. Yeah, I, I think they're first in line. Right. Um, and I th- think that uh, Macs are... I mean, you see bugs with uh, with iOS and Wi-Fi too, but I do think it seems to hit the Mac more, and I can't help but think it's because the Mac hardware is not as unified as as iOS hardware. Yeah,
1: I think iPad Air 2 is the first iPad where we didn't see a bunch of people complaining about Wi-Fi uh, as soon as it launched.
0: Yeah, I, I get the feeling that, like, supporting wi-fi at the driver level is you know sort of like supporting imap when you're writing a mail client which it yeah. meaning that every single imap server has like a different interpretation of the imap spec at some level
1: yeah
0: like there's no way to just write a generic imap client every imap client that it gains any popularity because it hasn't you know it it's actually useful effectively has you know it you know i'm Server-by-server server list of exceptions and, and stuff like that. Which was the
1: big complaint about mail and mavericks, especially with Gmail's eccentric, to use the polite word, IMAP implementation. And now with Yosemite, you don't hear that very much anymore either.
0: No, you don't. I, I think it's I think they've cleaned that up pretty well. Yeah. Um, where are we at in the calendar year?
1: I think we're heading towards uh, the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus event.
0: Yeah, which was also the debut of the watch.
1: Yeah. Big and bigger and then small. Right. And Apple Pay. Yeah. And in the demo area, I mean, they had uh, the iPhones laid out. They had the iPads. They had the uh, Apple Watch laid out. And then they had a whole area where you could go and see Apple Pay both in the app and at a simulated um, uh, checkout station.
0: Yeah. And I do think that's a good example of how... How difficult this, you know, in broad strokes, how difficult Apple and, and, you know, anybody else who's in the industry, but how it's not a a month to month, year to year game. It's a decade long game, Mm -hmm. because even with Apple Pay, you know, it's intertwined with the iPhone six because it's the iPhone six and six plus are the only phones that work with Apple Pay, at least at retail terminals.
1: Uh
0: Uh, and you, you know you had to have Touch ID first, so yeah. that was a year that goes back a year ago to the iPhone 5s. You had to have it, and it had to work really well. So that starts a year ago. Now this year you've got the two new phones that have NFC built in, and the rollout in the retail stores of the terminals you know that accept it. Um, but you're still talking about a service that only works two months in for people who've bought a brand new top of the line iPhone within the last two months, right? Like the real the real Apple Play is two, three years ago, when 85% of active iPhone users are using something iPhone six or newer,
1: It, it shows uh, the patience that Apple has for some things. And it shows how, for example, NFC to a lot of their competitors was just a chipset. Like They would just throw it in there. They didn't really care what you did with it. Different manufacturers would do different things. Where Apple, there's no such thing as a chipset. It's a feature set. And they experimented with NFC. They were prototypes with NFC for years. And they just never shipped it because they didn't have a feature set that needed it. Not that it was you know, a curiosity and might be a benefit, but actually needed it. Uh, as a core technology in the phone. And when they did, they put NFC in and they shipped it. Uh, and it took until iPhone 6 for that to happen. But like you said, they had to have Passbook, they had to have Touch ID, they'd to have all these things in place. And then when it made sense as a product, it gets shipped.
0: Yeah, I've, I've heard about NFC for iPhone, I think as far back as 2009, yeah. which was the year that the 3GS came out. And that... I'm trying to think when that was that I heard that... It, I mean, it would have been, wouldn't have been right before. It would have been, you know, like seven or eight months before that it was a maybe for the next iPhone, you know, and clearly, you know, obviously it did not happen. Uh, and, I you know, I think ultimately, you know, why not? And, you know, again, it was a recurring thing, like 2009, maybe 2010, definitely maybe. Apple yeah. is very, very interested in NFC. Um, so that would have been the iPhone 4, you know, yes. wasn't there. And I think it was always, you know, is that there was no story behind it right there's no what how are we, how is this actually going to be useful to people in the real world
1: absolutely i mean I- they would prototype it. Apple prototypes almost any anything that you can find a blog post about that makes even the slightest logical sense Apple will prototype prototyped it like when they say Macs make no sense for multi-touch it's not because they're just you know daydreaming or saying it for the sake of saying it it's because they built it they spent a lot of time trying it and they decided it wasn't an experience they want to ship and it, in one day maybe it will be and with NFC it was in later stage prototypes for different phones and they're trying things and they're like you said no story so it didn't ship and then as soon as they had a really compelling story which was Apple Pay that's in every phone we have now
0: yeah so tying it in you know the iPhone 6 announcement with this week's news there's another r- rumor that came out of Asia some analysts that uh, that Apple is considering a, um, a for a new four-inch iPhone for next year do you see that yep I think Mac rumors had it um, I think the name the guy came up with it was totally stupid he called it the iPhone 6s <laughs> mini yeah
1: <laughs> They should call it a 6S minus.
0: I think the name would be, clearly it would be the iPhone 6C, right? Yep. I, I think it almost certainly would be the iPhone 6C. And if not C, then Air, maybe. It's got to be
1: 6S minus, 6S, and 6S plus. Just use them, Just ride that
0: math analogy into the ground. <laughs> Minus. And they'd actually spell it out like M-I-N-U-S.
1: I think, again, I'm, I'm almost, you know, I can't say I'm positive, but I think it's very likely that Apple's prototyping four-inch iPhones because they prototype tons of different sizes. What was interesting to me is I heard you say that on a previous show. It might have been two episodes ago or three episodes ago. And I was curious, you know, what Android people thought of that because their phones, I mean, their, their version of the HTC One Mini was, I think, you know, five inches or something. And so I asked them, you know, is there a demand for four-inch Android phones? And I heard crickets people said no 4.7 is the smallest we'd ever want and to me that that doesn't mean apple shouldn't make one that means there's probably a segment of the market that is totally underserved by the volume vendors and that there is opportunity for people who are distinguished or 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 have very specific tastes and and would enjoy ios at that size
0: yeah uh, the thing that makes, and, and this isn't based on this guy's reporting. This is just my, I close my eyes and think about the way Apple thinks and the way Apple has acted over the last seven years. And I think it's probably true, but I also think that calling it the six C, whether they call it that or not tells you exactly what it's going to be yeah. is. I think it's going to be an a eight, you know, this year's a eight and a camera like this year's camera. Um, it's you know, going to be effectively an iPhone 6 shrunk to four inches, whereas the iPhone 6S and 6S Plus, if they call them that, will get the A9 and they'll get a better camera and other you know whatever the 2015 technical improvements are. So that you'll be able to buy a four-inch iPhone next year and you'll have Touch ID and you'll have Apple Pay and you'll have an A8. And you'll have a camera like the one we have today. But if you want the top of the line, if you want the newest, the latest, and greatest camera, if you want the latest and greatest uh, system on a chip, you're still gonna have to go 4.7 or or 5.5.
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense for the same reasons, like, cause the, the uh, iPhone 5C kept, was always called the cheap iPhone and Apple never makes cheap products. But they wanted to make a popular iPhone. They wanted something that would sit on the shelves, not like a blockbuster movie, but like a TV show that just people could buy anytime. But it also let them shove that down to the bottom of the line much faster. They wouldn't have to leave an iPhone 5 there. And the same logic makes sense to the, you know, for an iPhone 6C to be able to move that down the product line faster and make Apple pay more accessible to more people or, and to have it in more parts of their product lineup.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing that they don't want is that third pricing tier that starts it. cuz that's the other thing. If you do want a new 4-inch phone next year, I do the other the, if I'm right that it's going to be the 2014 tech technical stuff, you know, the A8, mm-hmm. and the camera, etc. The upside will be that you'll save money because I think it'll start at $99 on a contract and, you know, if it's off contract, it'll be $100 less than yeah. the the 6S.
1: If you have 4.7 at the 199 mark the 4 inch just based on human behavior has to be cheaper
0: yeah the thing that I think they wanted to get away from is having that $99 tier and I'm speaking in the subsidized terms mm-hmm. but the $99 tier look virtually identical to the 199 tier yeah right that's what the six or the 5c did is they you know it had exactly the same tech specs almost to a T as the iPhone five, but it looked different. And some people, you know, obviously, some people thought it looked better. I know people who bought it because they wanted a colorful phone. But it's still even if that's the case, then you know, good for you, you saved 100 bucks. But I don't think Apple liked it where up until the five C was introduced the the $99 option looked or nearly identical. You know, there were obviously some certain tells that you could tell an iPhone 4 from a 4S. You know, the antenna bands were at certainly different, at, at slightly different points. And earlier, the when they first started keeping the year- old phone around, the 3G and the 3GS, you could tell them apart because the i the word iPhone on the back was written yes. in shiny letters instead of flat letters.
1: Well, people want to show they have the new one, right? As part of the esteem of having the new iPhone.
0: Right. No, I totally think so. You know, and it's... And Apple wants to enable that. So that's why I think that, you know, I don't know if I don't know if an iPhone um, 6C would be plastic like the 5C. Like I wouldn't be surprised if it's metal or and rounded, you know, with rounded corners like the 6S and 6 Plus. But just the size of it would tell you that it's, you know, the lesser model.
1: Yeah, it was funny with the iPhone 5, even though Apple rebuilt it from the Atoms on up, it was boring. But the minute they made it in gold, you know, people first made fun of it, and then everyone complained they couldn't get one.
0: (laughs) Did you hear, you know, it's still hard to get uh, iPhones. Yeah. Like, they're they're still, I didn't know that until I was listening to ATP and heard uh, Syracusa talking about it. It's, uh, yeah. Supply still hasn't caught up with demand.
1: Yeah, Milton has been trying to get them for weeks, and I think he had to finally call in favors to try to get them shipped to him. <laughs>
0: that makes me laugh. Well
1: it's hilarious because people who leave Apple have no idea how to get a like how normal people get their phones. Like they just they've never had to deal with carriers or with retail stores or and it sounds like some of them, you know, as much as I love them, they're just a little inequip, inequipped to deal with the horrors of retail shopping.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me see here. If I get a, a six and I get it in space gray. I get it on Verizon. Uh, if I want, well, it looks like I can get I can get uh, one hundred twenty eight gigs is available three to five business days.
1: I think the six plus is still harder than the six, yeah. And, but they're starting to fall into in more bound, which is crazy. I mean, as much as people complain about about the iPhone, you still can't get them. There's their compl- supply constrained for months after launch.
0: Yeah, which is crazy. Um, And I think that's, you know, but I still think that's pretty interesting that they're at a point where they still don't catch up in supply demand until after the holiday. Yeah,
1: and year after year, too, it's not a diminishing thing. They're making more and more money off the iPhone.
0: Yeah. What's left? I guess we have the the last event of the year, which would be the iPad Air 2 and Yosemite. Oh, and the Retina iMac. Retina iMac is the only one that really sticks out to me. I still I love the iPad Air too. I still think I think it's an amazing device, but it's it's a refinement of the iPad Air. Whereas the the Retina 5K Mac is to me like a new a new era.
1: The two things that are similar to me about those devices are that with the iPad Air 2, Apple started making their own GPUs. And it, like, like a Nantech first thought it was uh, a six core. Um, imagination uh, chip and they later realized that it was an eight core one which was totally theoretical until apple made it it, it wasn't just a design they actually took the architecture and built their own custom gpu and they've been doing cpus for a couple of generations like they had swift and they had cyclone and now they have cyclone Two. but now they're doing the entire chip almost is, is in-house at apple and then you look at the imac and they made the timing controller for right. that they made 5k possible in that computer when Intel has not yet shipped Skylake or, or Thunderbolt 3 or anything so they are there again they're making more and more of, of the internals of their machines
0: yeah and it's interesting to me that they've done it for the iMac because they've've they've, they've had this economy of scale with iOS devices because even as they've expanded the lineups and they've gone out of two iPhone sizes and you know there's two iPad sizes. And there are cellular and non-cellular versions of the iPads. But for the most part, it's still, in terms of what's actually new this year, it's a very limited number of SKUs, mm-hmm. right? And, and they share a lot of stuff, you know, that the iPhone 6 and 6 Plus are really very, very... There's a slight difference in the camera where the, the 6 Plus camera has optical image stabilization. So that's a different part. But it's the same A8 CPU, uh, and it's you know just the stuff that has to be different. It's a different you know different display, um, because it's a different size and has different pixels. Um, but that they've you know they had this great economy of scale, which lets them do these things like you're saying, like build their own systems on a chip, um, and not share it with the rest of the you know have these things that aren't available to anybody else in the industry. It's interesting to me that they've done it with the iMac too, which yeah. is clearly lower volume. I mean, without question. I mean, I think all iMacs together are are just dropping drop in the bucket volume-wise compared to iPad or uh, any iPhone or iPad model. But the Retina one in particular existing only at the top of the um, uh, product... What do you call it? The product... Uh, the pyramid? Yeah, the pyramid, right? It's only the best option. The good yeah. and better ones are still non-Retina because the Retina display... Um, you know, it's it's this weird combination where it's you know in one sense it's remarkably inexpensive because famously like dell has a 5k display Did, didn't they come out with a 5k display
1: they yeah they came out with it a month or so ago but it's it requires two
0: uh display port connections but it costs as much it costs as much or more as the whole iMac yes Right. So Dell came out with a 5K display where just the display and forget about whether you need you know, how you're going to actually run it and that you need two display ports and all that. And how are you going to get graphics cards? How are you going to get how you, how's everything going to work? Just forget about it. it. Just the display itself costs as much as the whole iMac, which includes a pretty killer computer. Yeah. And the
1: crazy thing is, Apple. If you asked me, you know, ten years ago, you know, Apple's not a chip fab. They're not an Intel. They're not a TMCH. They're not any one of these companies. And they got to 64-bit first. And now they're they're making chips that are just pushing the industry forward. And they're not a peripheral maker, but they're they with the original IPS iMac and now with the 5K iMac, they're making displays that's just pushing uh, the industry forward. And the the iPad Air 2 is so overpowered that you could arguably say, you know, guys, relax, stop. But instead of that, Apple's just saying, run, get as far ahead as fast as you can and just keep going, just push the state of this technology, because it will filter down and we will figure out a way to
0: make all this stuff super, super important and to do things that nobody else can do. Yeah. And it's, it, it's turning the industry's model on its head, where from the outset, from the very beginning of personal computing through recently, the model was that it's you know this commodity market where you buy cpus from intel yeah. you buy graphics cards from nvidia or you know whoever else radeon i guess it, you know but there'd be graphics companies there'd be memory makers you know there'd be uh, hard drive makers and you would just put all the you know if you wanted to make a computer you'd pick and choose you get it's like this a salad from bar right i guess yeah it's totally like a salad bar but everybody else could get them too and you could make deals, and depending on your volume, I'm sure you know Dell and HP, as higher volume vendors would have some sort of leverage and priority versus, you know, a, a smaller by market share PC maker. You know, but it was the, the what you were possible, what what was possible to do though was limited by these specialists. So if you wanted to drive a 5K display. You were limited unless you could get somebody else, you know, less the state of the art in the graphics industry was a graphics card that could push that many pixels and a connector that could carry them. Whereas Apple has started turning things like that on its head and it doesn't matter if the industry can't do it yet. The state of the art in the industry, they just made their own and made it work yep. and it's not available to anybody else. That's the, in like you said, like to do things that other people can't do.
1: Well, it goes back to your only Apple uh, piece from WBDC.
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, probably the best piece I wrote this year. I think it's the only one that, re- or at least the one that has the most staying value. And well, even I- low these many months later, I think it's it's, if anything, I underplayed it.
1: Yeah, and I think it's true, and I think when we, like next year, we already mentioned maybe there's a bigger iPad, but maybe there's software and services that go along with that, and having two gigs and having uh, an octa-core GPU makes a lot more sense you know, next year than it makes this year, but it allows people who buy the brand-new iPad Air this year to not feel left behind when the newer devices or newer software ships.
0: Mm-hmm. I and I still I keep thinking about 64 bit for mobile and you know nobody else has it yet. I mean there's some chips that are capable of it out for Android but it certainly is far from mainstream.
1: Yeah, the Nexus 9 I think shipped with it just because they they decided they had to have they, they couldn't wait any longer to to get 64 bit out the door.
0: But it's not in it's not ARM, it's Intel, right? It's the Nexus 9 I think is uh an X84 X86 chip. I,
1: I think no I think it's Qualcomm but I'd have to
0: double check. Well, I don't know. but Either way, though, it certainly isn't like a mainstream thing.
1: But to me, it's that it's, it 64-bit came out and people complained, oh, there's no 4 gigabytes of memory. Apple's just wasting it. But it turns out that the ARM V8 instruction set was so much better and the security that they could use enabled all the Touch ID stuff. There was just so many other things about building that chipset that 64-bit was almost a bonus for them. The same way 3 cores on the iPhone 6 is almost a bonus and 8 cores on the, on the iPad Air 2. They're doing it because they can. There's no reason not to. So why shouldn't we do it?
0: Right, it just goes hand in hand with the the new instruction set, which is really where the performance wins come from. Yeah. Not the ma- not any sort of magical going from 32 to 64 on any hypothetical platform magically makes things better. It wasn't like that. It was a very very practical, you know, ARM the new ARM instruction set is way better. It gets rid of all sorts of legacy cruft, you know, that dates back to the early days of ARM when it was powering things like the Newton yeah. and, you know, Compilots and stuff like that. And I way mean, more clear, registers, it's just so many benefits. Right. And everything that the, the the computer engineers have learned since then about how to make efficient, you know, instruction sets for, for computers and you know, and what what is it that a modern compiler wants to see in an instruction set to to generate efficient code? And it was, you know, rewritten from scratch with all this craft gone and all sorts of new stuff to help modern compilers you know in there and here we are over a year later and st- Apple is still the only mainstream you know device that has it yeah.
1: and we have swift and we have metal so when you put those technologies all together eventually the performance is going to be way beyond what just the hardware delivers
0: yeah and i think that those two things you know uh, swift is obviously new for 2014 uh metal is new for 2014 and I think they get to the heart of like, what, what, what is Apple going to be like as a big company mm-hmm. with, with big weapons to swing around. And, you know, obviously, like I said, like the watch, the, the, the canary in the coal fund I'm looking for is hubris, you know, and obviously when a company gets bigger, it tries to do more on its own. I mean, Microsoft famously, you know, it does everything on its own. Yeah. Um, you know, their own you know they're the only company that use back, you know just little details like that they use backslashes instead of slashes between directory paths um uh, to you know having had their own uh you know developer tool chain and their own programming language you know for you know but they have did more than that though i feel like when microsoft was at its height you know in the 90s you know it was the fact that they expanded into things like uh Co ownership of slate.com, <laughs> yeah. the founding of MSNBC, you know, that they wanted to own a cable news yeah, the network. Web TV thing. Right. Why, why would Microsoft want to get involved in cable news, you know? But I feel like Apple, as they try to do more and more on their own, it's only in the name of enabling features that would be better for the products they're already making.
1: Right. Like for enterprise, they didn't decide to create an enterprise company or buy an enterprise company. They partnered with IBM to let them do what they did well.
0: Right. No, yeah, that's a great. Yeah, that's a great example of that they didn't create this new enterprise division within Apple, which is outside their expertise and and risks losing their focus. You know, if Tim Cook wants this, you know, wants to make a big bet and and do this, so he doesn't have to spend anywhere near as much attention on it as you know as he would in this world where they're willing to say, you know, what we just want our devices to be used in the enterprise. We'll let IBM handle how to make the sales and how to write these, you know, these apps that are meant for that market. Yep. It's a perfect example.
1: Yeah, much better than buying SAP or something that you know the imaginary people
0: always want Apple to buy. Right, and Swift, you know, is an example where they're not—they didn't create a new programming language to change computer science. It's not, you know, if anything, the the critiques from people who are like programming language critics is that it's sort of a boring language. It, there's nothing outlandish about it. There's nothing novel about it. Um, it's just a nice, simple language you know in term not not that there aren't clever things under the hood. and like the fact that um, you know most of the language is designed is is defined in the runtime, not in the language itself. The language itself is super, super minimal. There's something you know artistic about that. Yeah. but effectively, it's just what kind of programming language would you write? Would you want to enable the sort of software that Apple wants to run? That's it. It's just a very, very practical language, um, you know. And what would you get when you have a language that's led by the compiler guy, Chris Latner?
1: Yeah, or a company that lets the compiler guy lead the language.
0: Right, but it's sort of the opposite of the sort of hoity-toity academic languages that, you know, the new programming languages that I remember when I was young and in college in the 90s, where it was all led—it was, it, you know, the 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 practical utility then was completely abstracted. It was all uh, philosophical in terms of what was driving the decisions behind them.
1: Yeah, it's a language designed to be used by Apple and, and sooner rather than later.
0: Yes, very much so. And very much designed, you know, as Syracuse has pointed out on ATP— It's we've already one thing we've got that is not going to budge is we've already got these frameworks, the cocoa frameworks. And in theory, if they were going to start with all new frameworks, maybe they'd come up with all new language. But it's if we've got these frameworks that are, you know, have these, you know, that are already designed and already have these these, you know, design patterns, what type of new language would we use that would best leverage them?
1: And that's one of the things that I, I really like about the way that Apple's running now is they're not—they don't have to restart everything again. They can do something like uh, add LLVM and, and add Swift and do these things that take them further without having to destroy or stop or create an artificial break between what they had before. It's like they're swapping the parts behind the scenes, and if you're not paying attention, you might not even see it. But it gives them tremendous benefit
0: over time. Yeah, and Metal, likewise, you know, it's it, it's. It's the only. It's the sort of thing you can only do when you have a big user base. Yeah. I mean, Microsoft famously has done that with the DirectX, you know, where Mike, you know, and it's you know sustained to this day their their leadership in PC gaming, you know, if that there's probably no area of computing where they're stronger than yeah. PC gaming, uh, and they're able to say, here's you know, here's the graphics language you're going to use, and that's it, and they can do that because they've got the the footprint. Apple couldn't do Metal, you know, 10 years ago yeah. with the Mac. I mean, it's still not on the Mac, but they couldn't. And I don't think they could have... I don't think it would have really taken off in 2008 or 2009. They really needed that massive hundreds of millions of users base and this, you know, this de facto position as, like, the leading handheld gaming market. And now it it's not like they're forcing it down developers' throats. They're... It, you know and you don't have to use it it's not like they're, they're they've said like oh next year if you don't use if your game isn't using swift it won't be in the app store yeah. it's something developers want to use though because you know it's it gives them better performance and lets them hit you know a huge number of their users
1: and it was something that they could announce at WWDC while they were announcing that I forget the four or five biggest game engines in the world were all supporting it. So for most developers, they quote unquote get it for free because the engine that they're already using is just now getting the benefits of all
0: of that. Right, right. And it's definitely a, um, yeah, like I said, it's in, in broad strokes, it's the sort of thing Apple could only do now yeah. that they're big and the market leader, and that wouldn't, it just wasn't possible in the old days when they were the The little guy on the sides.
1: Yeah, when the when the Adobe's and Microsofts could say no, we're not going to support your
0: your Rhapsody. Yeah, that's a you know perfect example, right? Although the Rhapsody thing was a little bit more. It's funny because they were a little bit more adamant back then. Where their <laughs> initial proposal with adamant with, with, with Rhapsody was, you're going to rewrite your apps in Cocoa, or else you have to run in this little little ghetto uh, environment. Whereas, you know, even with Swift, like I said, they're not saying you have to use Swift, even though they could, really. I mean, I think they could get away with it, but, you know, they're not because I feel like there's um, a humility to them. Yeah,
1: I I mean, absolutely. And you get people like, you know, Brent Simmons now who get to play around with it and blog about all their experiences with it and it benefits everybody. It's almost like a a built-in. They don't do betas the way Google does, but the way they're releasing it gives a lot of people a lot of time to weigh in beyond the five and then hundred people at Apple who knew about it.
0: Let me take a break here and thank our third and final sponsor of the show. And it's our good friends at hover, H-O-V-E-R. Hover is, and I say this without any hesitation, the world's best way to manage and buy domain names. They're a domain registrar and they're the best. They really are. They've been around for a long time. They've been around, I think, 15 years, maybe even more. Um, They have tremendous customer service. They have a no gimmick, no upsell, no scammy buying process. They have great search for domain names. They have great tools to help you. If the one you're looking for, your first guess is the domain name you want, you type it in, ends up it's already taken, ends up none of the the, the top level domains where it's available or what you want. They have great tools to help you find one, uh, a similar domain name that you do want. Uh, in less than five minutes with Hover, you can find the domain name you want, get it up and running. All you have to do is search for keywords, and they'll show you the best options. Uh, if you've ever registered a domain name anywhere else, and I'm guessing that the number of listeners of this show who, who own just one domain name is probably minimal. I mean, I think most of the people like me are probably have a problem and have too many domain names, most of them unused. But if you've ever registered a domain name anywhere else, you know that most of the other registrars out there make it a really unpleasant experience. They make it complicated just to buy what you really need. They try to upsell you with stuff you don't need on your way to the shopping cart. You have to double check that they haven't already inserted something that you don't want in there. And they make you pay extra to upgrade for things that should be included, like who is privacy. Like you don't have to pay extra to hover to get your uh, who is uh, record made private. It's just part of the service that they offer. Because who wouldn't want it made private? I remember years ago, it used to be your Who is registry had to have your home phone number in it or an active working phone number. And then uh, telemarketers could just go through Who is records and get a, you know, a list of working phone numbers. You don't want that. You want uh, privacy. Hover just gives it to you for free. Here's the most amazing thing, though. This, I say this every time that they sponsor the show. They have what they call part of their technical support is free valet transfer service. So if you've already got domains at some other registrar, if you're willing to give Hover your login information to your your registry account at the other registrar, they will just move your domains over from your old registrar to your new one at Hover and take care of all the stuff that needs to be changed, the DNS and all that stuff. This is all their, their valet transfer people do. They're experts in moving domains. You, like me, probably are not an expert in moving domains. And when you do it, you make a mistake with DNS, you can ruin your day. You could knock your website uh, offline for the day before when you fix it propagates to everywhere that got the bad stuff. Um, just amazing, no wait, no hold, no transfer technical support. You just call them up. You call them up on the phone, and they answer the phone like a person answers the phone. Amazing. So, where do you go to find out more? Go to hover.com and use this promo code. The promo code for my show this week is Scotch, like the beverage. S C O T C H. Use Scotch as your hover as your uh, promo code at hover. And you'll get ten percent off your first purchase by going to hover.com and typing in that promo code. Can't recommend them highly enough. Great thing you got time to burn over the holidays and you got your, your domains tied up at some shitty registry. Go to Hover, sign up, use that code Scotch, and move your domains over. You'll save money and then you'll you'll email me and you'll say, I can't believe I didn't move my stuff over to Hover before. So my thanks to Hover. Drink any good Scotch lately, Renee? Uh, only when I'm out with you and Guy, that's
1: the, that's, that's the time when I get the bourbon and the scotch. I
0: don't think I've had any scotch lately, or if I do, I don't remember.
1: The so lack of Christmas Apple events.
0: Yeah. Um, so that's it, though. I think that what else is up for 2014 in review?
1: I, I think there's sort of two things that we could touch on just quickly. One is uh, the uh, Tim Cook beyond just running at Apple, but the the moves he's made towards uh, inclusivity and towards equal opportunity, uh, oh, civil I liberties.
0: Should... I can't believe I didn't think of that. I think that's it's absolutely been a big year for that.
1: Yeah, that his essay, uh, I think, was just absolutely pitch perfect. Um, just uh, his own version of you know thoughts on, and but it was yeah. so much more personal.
0: Yeah, I think even if he hadn't written that and come out himself as gay this year, I I think it would still be worth talking about the like you said inclusivity and etc. That that he's led and that Apple has pushed this year.
1: It's terrific. And it, it reminds me of the story that I heard, uh, you know, with, with Scott Forstall, where he really wanted to make Apple a more inclusive company. And he believed that you, in order to hire more in, in, with more diversity, you had to have more diversity in the hiring process. So when he would get they had terrific female engineers, I mean, Vicky Murley famously, but terrific female engineers on the Safari team, for example. And they would they would not only send them on the resumes, but they would send them out to, you know, on the job hunts to, to the to the colleges because they knew that they would come back with a different perspective. And we we haven't seen tremendous spread of that effect. We haven't seen a huge swing in the amount of women or minorities in in jobs in Silicon Valley, but we have seen improvements. And I think with Apple's report, as disappointing as the results might be to many people, uh, the exposure that it gets and the willingness for people to want to make it better, I think were huge this year.
0: Yeah. And I think it's, again, another one of those things where I think you can really just take Tim Cook at his word. Yeah. And it's no euphemism. It's not just, you know, trying to say what people want to hear. I think he means it where a, he thinks it's just right. It's just the right thing to do. But B that, that, that fierce competitor in him, you can tell when he says it, that it's, there's, there's obviously so much untapped talent outside the white male engineer, you know, whites and Asians, you know, that everybody else, women, people of color, uh, men and women uh it's the talent is out there and apple is starved for talent and they want it you know so there's in addition to the 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 justice angle you know that it's the way it should be that that people don't feel welcome in the industry but it there's also just a purely competitive aspect to it and it's it was that Beautiful moment too with
1: Tim Cook when they were at the shareholders meeting and the guy stood up and he said, why are you wasting, basically said, why are you wasting my money on environmentalism and accessibility? And Tim Cook said, you know, that this stuff matters. And if you don't think it matters,
0: just get the hell out of the stock. Right. It was the guy brought up ROI, return on investment. And, you know, and it was fascinating, you know, that, that Cook got as angry as he did and said, everything we do isn't about the bloody ROI. Yeah. And it's funny that he said bloody because he's, you know, clearly he's not British. But
1: he's the cool one, right? Like we'd expect that from Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was bombastic, but Tim Cook always looked like he would just sit there with laser beams in his eyes. And that for him is hugely emotional.
0: Right. It wouldn't be surprising if Tim Cook, I mean, if Steve Jobs had gotten angry at a shareholder. Yeah. Whereas Tim Cook is the guy you'd think no matter what any crackpot shareholder would say, he's not going to get angry. But he that that clearly angered him, and again, like when uh, I think it was the Financial Times that named him their CEO of the year. There was, it was somebody. There was a, a couple, couple people, yeah, so far. But the one that I linked to, I remember that they led their their. Here's why with that anecdote, and I think in hindsight it was the most telling anecdote of the year. You know, in terms of Tim Cook uh, being unscripted. Yes. You know, I think in terms of what was scripted and what was planned, his. Uh, you know, his coming out essay in Business Week was probably it. But that moment at the shareholders' meeting, I think, was the most telling impromptu moment.
1: Yeah. And, and it, you know, it really made me think it's strange to say, but it made me think a lot more of Tim Cook because, you know, it is hard to tell. He is so controlled in public and so on message and so on point. And he's such, he's so gifted as a thinker and, a, and someone who who's controls logistics and all these things. To see his emotional response sort of added a whole new dimension to
0: him as not just a CEO, but a person. Yeah, I think absolutely, and uh, you know, and I think that's it, it. It's also a to me a sign of the long term thinking that the Apple, you know, under Jobs, you know, constantly, you know, consistently since since the in the post next reunification era, you know, that they've been a long term company that's looking at building a, a company that's going to be here for fifty or a hundred years, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's going to outlive everybody who's at the company today. You know, and there's—I really do think that that's what they're looking at. That they're trying to build an institution that's going to still be here when Tim Cook and Phil Schiller and Angela Arnts are all long retired and, you know, frankly, in the grave. Yeah. And how do you do that? Well, you don't do it by sweating Mm -hmm. the ROI on every single thing you do. Yeah. And it's you know the other thing too it that, and I think it's probably what burned him up is. It's not like Apple, you know, has dipped into low profit margins, <laughs> and that they're still spending money. I think it was, in particular, with the uh, the the clean energy for the data centers, and spending money on, th- you know, worrying about things like their environmental impact yeah. on uh, global warming or climate change, whatever you want to call it, carbon footprint.
1: Yeah, it it definitely struck a chord with him. It. It, it it was a good chord to have been struck. Uh, and, you know,
0: it, it, the whole, you know, social uh, equality angle is as clearly I don't think Steve Jobs was against it, but it's, you know, it, it, Apple is clearly as a company yeah. is clearly more outspoken about it now than they were under him. Well, Jobs seemed
1: to believe that all that stuff was deeply personal. Charity, charitable donations and support for causes was something that he believed that Apple paying the people could let people spend their own money on, but it wasn't at a corporate level. Where Tim Cook, you know, he he took Apple on the Gay Pride Parade. He's put Apple behind uh, equal employment legislation. He's really believed that the power and and wealth of Apple can be used for more than just generating more power and wealth.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: All right. And what was your second thing? My second thing was I was going to talk about the app store stuff, but I feel like it's a bit of a downer at the end now.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe we did them in the wrong order. <laughs> well, we should still do it. We'll we'll let Whiskers fix it. Okay. <laughs> um. Right with the. Uh, well, the Today View widgets, right? That yes. That people, you know, uh, uh, in, in short, it was like Apple introduced these Today View widgets and at WWDC. And then, you know, I think they might have even literally said, we can't wait to see what you guys do with them. Yeah. And then they saw what people were doing with them and rejected a whole bunch of the most clever versions of them. Um, Who I, was it? was it i think it was james thompson's PCALC yeah that was simultaneously being promoted in the app store with a banner for great new uses of today view widgets because he added a calculator so you, you without even opening the app right in the today view if you if you put the PCALC widget in you could just do your calculation right there it was being promoted as a great new widget at the same time That like the review team had contacted him and said, you know what, that's outside the bounds of what we intended to be enabled, so you're going to have to submit a new build that takes that out.
1: I mean, it it sound, From the outside, it looks absolutely insane. And I think it's worth explaining, not to excuse it, but sort of to explain it. So extensibility is this huge new feature and uh, everyone is trying to ship iOS 8 and developers are trying to get their apps approved and app review is, it's the worst time of the year to work in app review. And they bring in as many people as they can and they try to get as many apps as possible onto the store. And as soon as an app is approved, and this is all under Phil Schiller's org, that, is, that moves to Eddie Q's org where they have app editorial and they need to program the entire app store promotion for all that stuff and all they see is approved they have no idea what might be going on behind the scenes it's is approved it's fine for editorial and then when things sort of slow down again people who are higher up in app store review who have a lot of ideas about what they believe you know they and they sincerely believe certain things about experience and whether a button will confuse an average user or whether someone is spending time in notification center and they're not supposed to it's supposed to be a, a, tri- a quick conduit and they care a lot about these things and they'll flag it and then it'll get removed and it won't make any sense and developers will appeal and it'll go to a higher level, and it might end up on the executive review committee's desk, and they might say, "It's fine, you know, stop worrying about it." Uh, and but it, I think extensibility was so new that it created a disconnect between what was technically possible and what people who had been in app review, you know, may, at a slightly higher level for many years, thought should be the experience on the system.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a very good way to put it, and I think maybe the transmit. Um... It was transmit, right? Yeah. Not, it, yeah. That had the sharing to uh, storage services like box.net and Dropbox and i iCloud Drive. Um, you know, that completely within the the they didn't they didn't use any non private or, or non public APIs, all public APIs. The sharing sheet itself, the the what was it called? Move to whatever yeah. you want to call it, send to, send to, um, they don't have any control over. It's part of that whole, um, uh, inter communication that, that enables so many of these continuity features and yeah, sharing it's, features. It's
1: one sheet. They can't line item veto certain services,
0: right? Because the system is drawing it, which is yeah. why Apple is opening up, seemingly opening up and letting you do these things that you couldn't do before. Um, and then they were told you can't you can't do this for iCloud drive. You can't send anything you you can't send anything that wasn't created in your your own app to iCloud drive. Which meant like you said because you don't have line item veto on the services that are listed that you had to take out the whole thing and now the app couldn't send to anybody including Dropbox or Box or anybody who Apple doesn't care about. Whereas it almost seemed like it was exactly why they added the send to in the first place so that you could do things like that.
1: It's again when you look at it from certain perspective, and I'm not supporting this perspective, but someone I, 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 I was saying like, you know, I understand, is that they didn't, they don't want the line item veto because they think that there can be disputes within companies that would cause one company to sort of remove a competitor or, or remove a service, and that's not to the benefit of the user. But the original model on Mac, it's the same. Like there was, Apple made a calculator widget for OS X, they didn't make one for iOS for a variety of reasons, but they thought it wasn't the right experience, so they deliberately didn't make one. Um, then you know, James Thompson, who's a phenomenal developer, did make one. For iCloud Drive on the Mac, you could put any arbitrary file there. But on iOS, it was sort of understood that you could only put files that you created or edited because that meant the user knew that they were in your app and was working on them and they would understand it was in that space. But then something like Transit comes along, which is the, you know, quote unquote, Steve Jobs unforeseen thing. And it's taken to the level where they can say, this isn't what we intended it for it to do, but it's not taken to the level of thinking, well, is it a good thing anyway? Like, should we let it in anyway? So it gets rejected, then it gets appealed, then it gets overturned. And it makes Apple look horrible in the press. It stresses out the developers and it affects the features that customers believe that they've paid for uh, and and have paid for. And it's just not a good outcome for anybody.
0: Yeah. But I do. Yeah. And if you like you said, though, I think if you want to try to understand why it's that it's so new. Yeah. And there's so many moving pieces. And. You know, the thing that made if you understood everything that was going on, the thing that made transmits and again transmit wasn't yanked from the app store they got a you know mostly friendly notification that that they were told you need to submit a new build that takes this out you know and they couldn't wait forever I'm sure that at some point Apple would you know It's
1: like two weeks usually I think yeah
0: and you know it's more or less you know take out those lines of code that do this test your new build and submit it and we'll do this Um, I don't think it's any surprise that it was the iOS version that Caused the problem. Now, if you understood what was going on, it didn't make any sense though, because nothing you could do from the iOS version, no file that you could put, move from transmit to your iCloud drive, you couldn't do the exact same thing on Yosemite. Yep. You could do the exact same thing. So there was nothing that they were, that, that whoever it was who thought they needed to not be able to do this from their iOS app. It was seemingly unaware that whatever it was that you would do, whether it was a porno file or an illegally downloaded movie or whatever it is that they were worried about, was it copyright, whatever,
1: or just stealing files? You know, you you load an app and it starts taking your files and putting it on someone's server somewhere.
0: Yes, um, it it was all stuff that you could do right in the Finder in Yosemite. You can put whatever file you want in your iCloud Drive. You know, in the same way that the Finder doesn't keep you from moving, you know, a file from any folder anywhere to any other folder. Um, but I think it's understandable because that, you know, the review teams and correct me if I'm wrong, I think you might know more about their internal makeup, but the iOS, it's not like a review team. There's iOS reviewers and Mac reviewers and the iOS reviewers are coming from a years long history of, you know, what's restricted on iOS and moving files that weren't created in app, whatever your app is to anywhere else has always been forbidden. And so it's, you know, I could see how it even got high up, not to the highest levels, but pretty high up. And they thought, no, this has to be against the rules. This isn't something that iOS does.
1: I wrote a piece about this. And one of the things I just wanted to, to and to help people understand is that when you say like Apple rejected it, Apple has these same discussions. Like if you listen to ATP or you listen to the talk show, that's the discussion that's happening inside Apple as well. And there's people advocating very strongly that these things should be allowed. And there's people advocating saying, this button here is going to confuse somebody. They'll press it. They'll suddenly be an app. They won't know where they are. And they're not modeling it for me or you or you know Marco or John or, or somebody. They're marketing it for... Our, our parents and you know our non sophisticated tech using relatives and they there are some people who are deeply deeply concerned that they have a very sensible understandable experience now you could argue that widgets and extensibility in general is is a pretty nerdy feature and anyone using it probably knows what they're doing and i think that's the argument that's winning out now but it, it really is these sorts of discussions and people want more rules sometimes on the app store but apple believes that the more my understanding is that apple believes that the more rules will actually chill innovation And they'd much rather see James Thompson, as annoying as it is, make a calculator widget, have it rejected, then have it approved, than him to see a rule and just never make it or have to lobby for a change in the rule that might take years. Because right now, as ugly and as frustrating as the process was, we have PCALC, we have Transmit, we have all these things now officially on the store, and we have these things officially clarified. And it's only been like two months. That's a good point. Yeah, I would like to see, and I wrote a thing about this, but I would, I think it would be great for everybody if there was a public-facing uh, vice president of App Store. There is, you know, there are really good directors of App Stores. There's really good people in both um, Schiller and uh, Q's org, but they're split over all these different organizations, and much like. Uh, software development accelerated under Federighi and stores are accelerating under Angela Aarons. I think if there was somebody whose only job it was to make a fantastic experience on the App Store, whether it's making review better, whether it's adding sloppy search finally to the App Store, but just someone who all he had to do was wake up every day and make developers and customers super happy, I think that would improve the situation for everybody.
0: Uh, What's the word? There's a word like uh, newspapers sometimes have them. Uh, ombudsman Ombudsman. that's uh, yeah i was thinking uh, the new york times doesn't call him an ombudsman they call the uh, the public editor yeah. only and, and I, my understanding of why is that for decades they rejected having an ombudsman and then when they finally added <laughs> an ombudsman they didn't want to say okay now we have an ombudsman they just called their ombudsman the public editor but the idea of the ombudsman is that at a newspaper for example the ombudsman doesn't is independent and doesn't report to the you know editor-in-chief of the newspaper and so a reader who has a problem with let's say the and some sort of bias in the coverage of anything can go to the ombudsman and the ombudsman can conduct like an independent review. I would love to see Apple have, a uh, an app store ombudsman. Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I get, I think the way to do it would be to, to, you know, write a blog and have a blog, not, not, you know, so it's not like anybody could, um, uh, create an ombudsman issue the ombudsman would still get to choose what they wrote about but that they could look at something like PCalc or transmit and you know not just like when i write about it or you write about it and kind of make a stink and hope somebody at apple reads our sites and does something about it but before going public with it the ombudsman could go inside and go to somebody and do the research and maybe get it clarified without the stink
1: yeah sort of de-escalate it before it hits the media and the executives.
0: Yeah, but then the ombudsman, as somebody inside Apple, could then write a post that maybe explains what Apple is thinking. And again, without making new rules and creating an ever more complicated set of uh, guidelines for the App Store, at least sort of explain in plain English, here's the sort of things that are okay in a Today View widget, and here's the sort of things that aren't.
1: It's, and I think that's that's a really good idea because, uh, I mean, we're friends with a lot of people who make productivity and creativity apps, and that's where this is a problem. The people making Clash of Clans and Candy Crush and all the people who are making the billions of dollars on the app store, there's no uncertainty for them. There's no problem with app review for them. They're all fine.
0: Right. That never. It, I'm sure it never occurred to the developer to make a version of crossy road that runs as a today view widget yeah
1: and yeah and i mean those those are the easy problems it's the ones that are that are more black and ones that are more shades of gray that have these problems and the other argument that it's killing innovation i mean i've had android devices for four or five years they have a much easier um review process than Apple does. And I've not seen the groundbreaking, you know, platform making sort of future apps arrive on Android any faster because of that than iOS. And it's easy to say maybe Android sucks and that's why it doesn't happen. But it's also possible that Apple does add background tasks and they do add, you know, extensibility and they they do add the features that they need to add to give developers sort of the tools that they need to make these sorts of apps. And it's possible that things like Workflow and Uber get made regardless of what app review does because, you know, those things... As as cool as they are, they don't they don't come across anywhere near the lines that Apple draws.
0: Well, on the other hand, though, I do think to take a devil's advocate position, you do, we do have far more a far richer variety of of outside the bounds of the stock, stock factory OS productivity software on Mac than we do iOS. Yes, the difference is that iOS is starting with this foundation of we apple are promising you that nothing you install from the app store is going to do something like run away in the background or you know be hard to uninstall Mm -hmm. if you don't like it you know that you you know whereas the the risks you take on the mac of allowing anything and everything that you can download outside the app store is that you have utilities that can be hard to uninstall i tried to
1: install uninstall blackberry connect and it was a nightmare
0: it's, you know, it's always, and I think it's less of a problem than it used to be, but it's always been a problem and that you might add uncertainty. And if you feel like, you know, like a non-technical user, like we know that if the fan's running on your computer and you don't think it should be, you can go to activity monitor or up there to the battery menu and it'll tell you, you know, in recent versions, who's, you know, which app is using excessive power, um. You know but it's could conf- it can be confusing to a typical user they don't know to do those things and what if it's some app that they've never heard of because it's you know the helper app for another mm-hmm. app it's a faceless background app that doesn't doesn't even show up in their dock well then what do they do you know iOS has this promise of we're, you're never going to have to worry about those things and you know part of that promise it, it only happens if if everything goes through an app store review process
1: which is why to install a keyboard, you got to download an app. And even though that app does absolutely nothing once you've downloaded it, and if you delete it, the keyboard goes away, it's still the same mechanism to deliver all the new features that they're adding. Uh, it's an interesting problem to solve. And I, I think, you know, I, I use pCalc the widget all the time. I I bar- sorry James, I barely launch pCalc anymore cuz the widget is just enough almost all the time. And I use drafts and I use transmit and I love all these features and I'm happy that Apple reversed the stuff. I just think that you, like it's worth breaking down the process that happens because the more you understand it.
0: Did drafts get everything back? Yes. Well, I did I wasn't aware of that. I knew that they that they had, had some you know, the same type of issues. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. The only thing that was rejected outright
1: was the the app launcher um, because Apple yeah. really doesn't believe that other things should launch apps. And the guy who tried, there was a rule that says you couldn't have keyboards and widgets. So the guy basically drew his own instead of invoking the built-in one and that was still rejected.
0: Yeah, I think it comes down to my, or I forget what I was arguing earlier, where it's you have to err on one side or the other. Yeah. And that at least with iOS, Apple's going to continue to err on the side of um, being a little too strict and you know the side effect of that like the benefit of that is that uh, abusive software isn't going to is less likely to slip through yeah the downside to it is like you said sometimes it's going to take some ugly airing of dirty laundry public airing of dirty laundry to get it to get it sufficiently you know looked at by a high enough level person
1: and i think I don't want to call it a problem, but I think the sign of the change is that you know Craig Federighi he skews more towards geeky than Scott Forstall did. I mean, it was hard to get AirDrop uh, on on the iPhone, and now we have you know extensibility and and continuity. And App Store review hasn't changed the way software development has changed. You know they they're they're still very much the organization they were back in the Forstall era, and there's going to be some tension until that's worked out. As we get geekier features, we're gonna the the iPhone was not made for geeks. It was made for app for mainstream people. It was a smartphone that everybody could use, but you know geeks loved it as well. And now it's becoming a phone that that works great for geeks because of these features. And I think app app review is going to have to evolve the way software has.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Um, all right. I think that's our catches up. I think that's our year in review. Good year. Yeah, it was. Uh, excited about next year?
1: Oh, uh, I'm I can't wait. Everything from the Apple Watch to the theoretically larger iPad to the new features we'll see with it and and iOS 9, I it's, I think it's going to be a great year.
0: I think I think one thing is for sure. I think one thing when we if we look back a year from now on 2015, I think the first half of 2015 is going to be a lot more interesting than the first half of 2014.
1: Yeah, it's going to harken back, I think, to the first year. I wouldn't be surprised if the first year, sorry, the first part of 2015 is very similar to the first part of 2010, and the iWatch is similar to the
0: launch of the original iPad. Yeah, I do. I because I, I, you know, just off the top of my head, I expect both a bigger iPad and the watch in the first half. Yeah, maybe whether they come at the same event or not, I don't know. But it, you know, I think they're both coming. Sort of before
1: WWDC. I just don't know if the Apple TV will come with them or if that's still in the garage.
0: You know what? Honestly, no idea. Wouldn't be surprised. It would be huge if they did all three in yeah. the first half. That would be almost unprecedented. And it just as a not to try to you know err on the side of getting too excited, <laughs> but it would kind of make sense in the context of Tim Cook's previous. You know, maybe over promising of what they were going to deliver in 2014, that some of these things, you know, maybe got bumped, you know, you know, Apple pay and, uh, uh, Apple watch count as the plural new product categories, um, but it does seem like when he first started talking about that, I expected a little bit more, like maybe one more thing for 2014.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, I don't know if you heard the same thing I did, but the Apple TV sounded like last spring, and then it sounded like this fall, and then it sounds like next spring. And it, it sounds like that's that's a bigger job than people thought it was originally going to be.
0: Yeah. I definitely heard back at June in WWDC that it, it was, uh, it maybe originally thought that it would come out before the end of 2014, but yeah. even back at June, it was no way. Yeah. It's not even not even feasible for it to be a 2014 thing.
1: And good, I'm happy if they. I mean, I, I liked it when Apple had products spread across the year. I find everything coming in fall just quite a lot to deal with.
0: Yeah, well, and the other thing too that I think made it impossible, and it's not even to get in any details of it, but it's just the simple fact that if it doesn't ship by October, it doesn't ship that year. Yes, that November and December don't count because they can't. They're just too late for the holiday season. Yeah. Absolutely. You know? That if it can't be announced in October, it doesn't get announced till 2015. And if it doesn't get announced in 2015, it's probably like more like February than January. Yeah,
1: and we'd start to see signs already. I mean, if any of those products were like January, February, we'd start seeing things moving.
0: Yeah, like November, December, January. Not that Apple doesn't get work done, but products don't get slated for release yeah. in those months. All right, Renee, More people can find out more. See your great work at uh, iMore, of course, iMore.com. Uh, what are your podcasts? List your podcasts.
1: Uh, I have Debug with Guy English. We talk to developers about developy stuff. And then I have Vector with Guy English, Dave Wiskus, and George Adal. We talk about the intersection of technology and humanity. And I do Iterate with Mark Edwards and Seth Clifford, which is designer-oriented
0: stuff. Who do you think is going to record more podcast episodes in 2015, you or Jason Snell?
1: I, I, it's, it's neck and neck, but I love that. Or maybe Mike Hurley. I mean, it's, it's, becoming, a, it's becoming a bit of a, of a joke, I guess.
0: <laughs> they're all good shows you're prolific i like here's why i like having you on this show because i feel like on your regular shows you defer to your guests and sometimes i forget that you're you're even there i'm like where'd renee go i'd like to hear <laughs> renee pipe in you are so deferential i like having you here and letting you go off because man you really know your shit oh,
1: thank you i really appreciate that
0: all right uh, well thanks to you and uh Go check out Renee's shows and uh, go read more. Thank you, John. All right, I'm hitting stop.